Welcome to Pivotal Film. I'm Tom Nolan. And I'm Mario Ponzio. And this is episode 66. The idea of beginning a new novel started whispering to me sometime in the first weeks of 2013. While I was stuck on the I-10 in traffic, merging into Hollywood, after I'd just spent a week in Palm Springs with a friend I'd gone to, gone to college with in the 1980s, and who was now losing her mind. She had broken down in front of me some several times during those days, in the house on Azure Court, before leaving earlier than expected to attend a Deepak Chopra retreat in San Diego. And yes, I know how this sounds. Ladies and gentlemen, we're no longer a pivotal film podcast. For the next 50 to 60 weeks, we are going to be doing a deep dive of White by Brady Snellis. Oh man, don't even get me started on White. Have you, have you read it yet? No, but I might. I tried. Did you get it? Took it out from the library? No, I, I found a illegal PDF file. Good, That's, that seems appropriate. <laughs> uh, oh, wait, no, sorry. Correction, yes. I, uh, I bought a copy legally. <laughs> it is. Here's, here's his, um, we're rustling his receipt right now. Yeah, yes. Perfect um, receipt. It is, it is bad. Well, it's getting panned, too, and it's really making me happy. And even people that seem to want to like it, like people that are kind of on his side politically are like, this is not a thing. Well, it's 100%. Like, what is this supposed to be? Like, after reading it and then looking back at the um, New Yorker article, you can definitely see it's like, boy, like we're in the New Yorker article, it's like, maybe you should have not written this book. Well, I read a That re- is 100% what he should have done. I mean, I don't think we need to deep dive this right now. We can if you want. We can do a bonus I mean, we episode have, deep We have 60 episodes to deal with white. But I love, <laughs> I love the fact that um, some people... Some people that reviewed it, and I've read a lot of reviews of it, and I think this is one of the ones in New York. I think it was, this was from the New York Times. Um, they clearly don't listen to his podcast. So they're just trying to observe a narrative through line um, for this nonfiction book. And if it's not politics and if it's not culture, um, they really kind of don't understand what it is. Because apparently what he did is he just took transcripts of some of his essays that he like delivered or monologues that he delivered in the beginning of his podcast and then just put them in the book. So they're just like, how does this his feelings on this movie line up with his feelings about wuss culture and all this other stuff? And they're just confused. <laughs> and I'm just like, I get it because I listen to it all the well, time. No, the Vox article, I think it's the Vox review, talks about how it's just his podcast in written form and about how basically nothing new was... Re- like, there was no revelation. It was just literally... Him vomiting on the page again. Well, best, now apparently there's a bunch of stuff, and maybe that was in the podcast, and I didn't, I didn't listen to that episode about like his like nine eleven, like his life in like the early two thousands, and like what a mess he was, and all this other stuff. Um, but I don't care about that either. He was a real snowflake. <laughs> no, he was hardcore. Okay. He was doing lots of drugs and and partying, and you know, being super cool, Brady and Ellis, being a character from his own books. He wasn't being a comrade. No, he wasn't being a comrade. No. That's the one thing I love. I love some he of the was reviews. never a comrade, Snowflake. Some of the best reviews, though, I've read of this are, like, confused about the use of the word comrade. Like, they don't understand. Because, like, from listening to his podcast, 
I didn't also understand like where he was coming from. Mm-hmm. Like totally, uh, him not knowing the difference between communism well, so, I mean, and socialism like, or like oh, social it's really democ- funny. Yeah, yeah. democracy. It's really funny because he um, he goes off on these rants on his podcast about how, or he has for the last couple of weeks about how we should all be really happy that Trump didn't collude. And like, why aren't we happy that Trump didn't collude with the Russians? It's like because the world is not didn't stop in 1980. Like it just kept developing, and like the nuance is different. So now we don't we don't care about Russia in that exact way that we did in the eighties. There is a, a Jacobin, Jacobin, I think, article um, about like how Fox News has kind of helped spread the message of socialism, and that's a positive thing. That now they're trying to say like the left is socialist, and the one big thing they used recently was um, you know Casa Cortez paying her uh, workers, the people in their like staff like mm-hmm. 52,000 instead of like the starting rate of 32,000 and we're like this is the rise of socialism and it's like yeah keep equating socialism to like equal pay and you know having pull actually pulling yourself up from the bootstraps to make a living wage like these people are working yeah a job getting a kind of still lower middle class income and now we're equating this with socialism yeah people are watching that are <laughs> Uh, the the Fox News, I guess, thinking is that people watching that are gonna be like, socialism. I don't want more money either. Yeah. More money is terrible. Gonna, or the fact that they're gonna see the word socialism and automatically be like, have a, some sort or of like automatic gonna... operant conditioned response. <laughs> and that's not the case anymore. Like our generation does has no like inbred like genetic disdain of the word socialism. I don't know. <laughs> like they could, if they said if they said the left is capitalist, it would actually make us angry. <laughs> Because, like, capitalist now has a negative like connotation. Well, to yeah. To an extent, yeah. It, sure. Yeah, I mean, ca- I mean, it's the the big companies like Amazon and stuff are capitalists. Or, like, the Stop and Shop, because we live in the Northeast. So they're capitalists, you know, they're capitalist institution that the leftist Joe Biden is, you know, is going to a rally in support of the union workers that is, they're striking against them. That's a union employee. The Stop and Shop thing is, is, is a weird one. I'm... No, but it's not. I'm not so so on the 100% side of the union on that one. I'm mostly on the side of the union. I'm definitely not. I hate corporations. I'm not on the side of stop and shop. I mean, sorry. I hate corporations except for the ones that sponsor us. We don't have to say that because we don't have any sponsors. But when we do. We want to be on their side. Casper, we really love you guys. (laughs) Blue Chew, you're great. Audible, you know what? A free book a month pretty good it's not that great because you're paying like 14 dollars for a, a book it's not free it's 14 dollars 95 cents burning the bridges i tried to rebuild um you know what though well, we're, we're inter- recording this on a friday morning friday morning yeah but the sun is the sun's breaking out a bit i i turned to look through the pivotal film towers skylights i can notice how dirty this skylight is Mario. why don't you climb up on your roof there and squeegee that off i should i should make my uh, landlord, who's me, because I own the, we own the we own this building, yeah. yeah, towers together. Um, but we have multiple skylights, and we can see the sun shining in. We usually record on Thursday night, but I was feeling a little down and ill. Ended up uh, still still going out to a kickball party, uh, which also brings out ideas of sunshine and stars <laughs> and and beautiful summer, because we're slowly gracing in the spring and summer. And I'm more. I'm one hundred percent convinced it's going to snow, like in the next week. I just feel, I can feel it in my bones. No. So this week, we are drinking what is, at one point, one of the most elusive, high, highly regarded beers of the Northeast. Sip of Sunshine. 
by Lawson's Finest Liquids. Um, used to be brewed in Burlington, Warren, sorry, Warren, Vermont. Um, but now they're brewing Sip of Sunshine because it's so popular. Two out of two roads. They've been doing that for so a while. Yeah. So it's yeah. now basically a Connecticut, Vermont beer, I guess. Which is fine. So, I mean, it definitely passes our farm to table with being Vermont, but now it's really local. Well, I always thought it was funny that... Um, it's an 8% uh, double IPA, by the way. Uh, um, it's always funny, though. It smell, I mean, it smells really... It smells like an IPA. I, I know what this tastes like. I've had many. You know, yes, we've, we've all had this lots of times. Still good. Um, it still has the, 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 quaint, like the slight notes of a West Coast-style IPA, so it's still got that bitterness, which I love. It I am, does. man, you, you know what? I'm going to say it, and this is still an opinion that, that a lot of people criticize me for. Not on the New England IPA train. Very, I like them, but there's too much of them. There's, and they're too heavy. Yeah. And this, to me, even though this has, like, I guess, a West Coast feel, I want, uh, I'm, maybe, I'm, and this is something we can talk about as we lean into the IPA season of this podcast, I've been actually really enjoying, um, and I wish I had the names of them, like a brighter like IPA, like these, bright by Treehouse. I don't think I've had that yet, unless you gave it to me and I drank one. No, not yeah, knowing yeah, what it yeah, was. Yeah. Um, I still am angry but, that we didn't have Doppelganger on the Us episode. That would have been good. Yeah, no. you messed up there. Um, but this isn't. It's this isn't really very bright either. It's no. a very. It's a nice, um, well balanced hoppy flavor. But I want that kind of like, like a pop of hop. In my my problem. Mouth. My problem. Sip of sunshine. It's a very drinkable beer. But that's the problem, is it's very drinkable, and it's 8%. Yeah. I could drink this beer, have another one, probably like another one before it hit me, but then by that point, I'm way down on that train. <laughs> but you don't drink, it doesn't have like a booziness to it, it's not... No, 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 it tastes nice, it's just not, yeah. it's just a little flat. And it's not like full, like a lot of New England IPAs are, so you don't kind of like feel it in your stomach, like it doesn't weigh you down, mm-hmm. so it's, it ends up being really, it's like a sea hag. Well, yeah, it's not... Sea hag, a beer you guys have not heard us talk about. That uh, will be in an episode at some point, but it's held in very high regard by me. And I think you like, I like it a lot. You know what? You know what's really pissing me off, though? Is people now are saying Headway blows Sea Hag out of the water. That's not true. I mean, Headway's good, but they're Headway's two fine. different beers. They taste completely different. Yeah. They don't taste any, anything like, alike. I can understand. If you're a New England IPA guy, you're going to like Headway. But if you're a West Coast IPA guy like I am, Sea Hag is like the beer. Yeah. Which is weird because it's, it's out of, you know. Connecticut. Woodbridge, Connecticut. Hmm. Yeah. Huh. I don't know they what do, they do a good West Coast style IPA in Connecticut. In which a is, warehouse with their which is not West food Coast. truck. Um, all right, let's talk about some new movies. Yeah, right. we haven't talked about movies. We're a movie podcast, and uh, we're talking, talking about, about everything besides movies. Talking about movies. Uh, we, so in after, on Saturday, last Saturday, uh, as... as Childish Gambino, also known as Donald Glover, was fi- finishing up his set at Coachella. Uh, a 55-minute movie directed by Hiro Murai and starring Donald Glover and Rihanna just appeared out a of feature, nowhere a on feature Amazon film, Prime. A feature film by uh, the Academy Standards. I oh, it's not it 60 minutes, film? but it's 45 minutes. Oh, I think that's a bummer for him. He should have just kept it. He could have maybe been nominated for an Oscar if he kept it down. But that's, you know, neither here nor there. Um... It is Guava Island? You feel like summertime. You took this heart of mine. You'll be 
my Valentine in the summer. In the summer. And it. As I said, directed by Hiro Murai, starring Donald Glover and Rihanna, and Letitia Wright from um, uh, uh, Black, Black Panther, Panther um, who's also kind of good in this. Um, Donald Glover plays Denny. He is uh, oh, he lives on a guava island which trades and traffics in, in rare silks, um, but they're lorded over by Red, who's played by Nanso Anozi, and uh, everyone's just forced to work all the time. Uh, Denny, though, is he works at the docks and he also does a radio show where he sings songs about. He's a local celebrity Red with his with his cargo, uh, music. and he's putting on a festival. When we the the story opens, we ha- we already know the festival is going to be on Saturday. Red doesn't want him to have the festival. Um, he offers him money not to have the festival. He has the festival anyway. We find out that, uh, spoiler, uh, Rihanna's character Kofi, who's his girlfriend, is going to have a baby, even though Denny never finds out that she's going to have a baby. Why um, doesn't Denny find that out? Because she doesn't tell him. But what? Ha- well, well, he could find out later, right? But he gets shot by someone in a... I'm assuming that's Red. Uh, it's not Red, but it's, it's it somebody that hired Red. Whatever. Um... He dies, they would have and then, the they have actor, a par- then they have a parade in blue. It was filmed in Cuba, my wife told me, which I didn't care to look up, but she looked it up, and she told me it was filmed in Cuba, <laughs> oh, that's which is some, good. Some good. Some good research we do there. Um, <laughs> we can't admit that we didn't look it up. you got to like own that, be like, yeah, we, we looked it up. and No, but I don't care about that. I don't care where it was filmed. It doesn't make any difference to me. I just <laughs> I kept assuming it was like a backlot or like some property that Donald Glover owns somewhere. So, um, yeah, it's, I think it's fine. I think it's weird. Um, I think it's well shot. Hiro Mirai is really good, and I can't wait for Hiro Mirai to make, like, an actual movie. Yeah, that aspect, I did enjoy the aspect ratio. It had... It's very 70s. Yeah, it had 70s. It's definitely, it's shot in digital. Um, but it looks like it was shot on But it's shot in digital with, with a filter. Um, but it looks good. It has... It has a flatness to it that's very seventies-like. It's mm-hmm. kind of got that. Um, I'm trying to think of. of it's got a depressed color film. palette. So even yeah. when it's even like when at the end when the blues come out, they're not like ex- exploding your eyeballs. Maybe Rihanna's dress is more than anything else. Um, but that's just the 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 color palette that they were trafficking in was that very muted kind of almost matte feel. A very filmy. I mean, you can see fil- like the grain of the of the film also um, that they didn't use to shoot it when it was happening. Um, I think it's weird though that all of Childish Gambino's most recent songs are featured so heavily in it. Yeah, it has it has all the songs from Summer Pack. It has This Is America, which the summer I think the Summer Pack songs the use of feels like summer and summertime magic work. Uh-huh. This Is America really feels shoehorned in uh, during that scene. Like it's it's a lot of build up. To this is America, but why make? I mean, my question would be, why make this? What's the point? I guess it was a story by his written by his brother Stephen Glover. Um, yeah, him and his him and his brother both did the story, and Stephen Glover ended up doing the screenplay. But for what's it. the point of this movie? I mean, just for fun. It's it's definitely doing the work of being kind of like an anti-capitalist manifesto, and to some degree, but it's it's not saying anything particularly new. Um, or anything. No, it's it's not saying really anything at all, which is disappointing. Yeah, strange. And as a huge fan of, of Atlanta, um, like I love Atlanta. You know, 
I'll watch anything Brian Tyree Henry or Lakeith Stanfield are now because well, uh, or Zazie Beetz. Right, that's well, for other reasons. It's turning out uh, that Donald Glover is like the least interesting actor that's come out of yeah, the Yeah, no, exactly. Um, and this, this and movie still, kind of I proves still like, that. I still like Glover, but he is a bit flat. He's a great comedian. He has a good like good comedic timing and everything. But as an actor, his dimensionality is still lacking. There's still kind of like this um, well, he's, he's, boyishness to him. Yeah, he's got like this mischievousness and then um, a kind of panicked evil. Like or mal- like he goes from like mischievous to like malevolent almost like in how he's <clears throat> in how he's like per- in his performances like of the songs, but also like when he's running away from the guy that's trying to shoot him, like he's not scared. He's got this really kind of antagonistic, mad face on him, and it's just kind of like I don't know if I agree with that. It's weird. Um, I would say more like there's kind of like a woefulness or like a melancholy. I don't think that's true though, because he's such a jerk. Like, so even when that guy, I guess he's supposed to be a jerk, but he never seems like he's being sincere. He never seems sincere. No, it kind of has he this, always like, seems like he's putting on this, like, weird... It has, like, weird... this jot frat quality to it, to his mischievousness, so he... It, it, it's the thing. The thing about him, I think, is he has such, like, good looks, and he has, like, a... Like, he carries himself well, and he has, like... He's, got he's very charisma. charismatic. Yeah, yeah, he's charismatic. So you can't buy him. He can't hide those well enough to seem not that way. Right. Um, like Keith Stanfield, you see Keith Stanfield in the interviews, and he has that same sort of like charisma, but he can one hundred percent like bury that. Well, and, like and you look at you know, sorry to bother you, or especially Atlanta, and he's a really weird, quirky kind of guy. Well, as it turns out, Brian Tyree Henry is apparently just like a ball of fire. Yeah. Who can just? <laughs> but he knows how to like. I'm also. I'm, he can I'm, control it and turn it into something. The thing about else. Brian Tyree Henry is I'm deeply afraid of Brian Tyree Henry. Aren't, but he also you... seems like the nicest guy in yeah. the world. But it's like the nicest guy in the world until. Right. But that, and so there's that, I think that's the thing that we're saying. And even Zazie Beetz is turning out to have like a lot of real depth as an actress. Um, she definitely is. Donald Glover does not ex- is not expressing those same kind of 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 theatrical attributes, you know yeah. what I mean? No, he he's, he's, he reminds me more of a Dwayne. I mean, it, he's a better actor than like Dwayne Johnson, but he just is. He rests on that charisma. Well, and so the, my, I mean, Nicolette pointed out that um, when we were watching it, like he does the same. So this is America, you know. Famously, he's making all these really weird faces and he's doing these weird body motions and stuff, and it's really jarring and kind of, you know, you're a little frightened and you're just kind of unsure. Um, when he's singing to Rihanna on the beach about how much he loves her, he's he's making the same faces and doing some of the same body movements. And it's just like a thing that he does. And you're just like, well, you just can't do that. Do something different. Um, <clears throat> and it's, I don't know, he's in, uh, the fact that it turns into like a martyr movie where he's, you know, he's martyred for like the, the people and they can rally around his death and all this other stuff is... It's like very self. It's a very self indulgent piece of cinema. Yeah, his my problem with him is like there is there is a lot of self indulgence so far in his work. Um, like he's always kind of front and center. He doesn't kind of like melt into it. Right. And that's bothersome. Like, I think that's like the great thing. Of, the reason why Atlanta is kind of like my favorite of his work so far um, is because when you have somebody like Tour de Forces that are turning out to be surrounding you, you kind of get like his charisma doesn't overcome the talents of that cast you right. know so he, he, he's able to kind of like blend in he's, he kind of becomes a supporting character in that second season in a lot of ways mm, and which I think he would be happy to he's would be happy to admit and yeah, I don't think I don't, I don't I think strike, that's probably he doesn't strike me as like an egotistical sort of actor he just he just 
overwhelms a project and his, his projects kind of feel self-indulgent but I don't necessarily think yeah, that's yeah. the purpose because uh-huh. he tries to he tries to kind of be a supporting character in this in a lot of ways like like definitely the first half to first two thirds are kind of like focused on him but tries to become more of a story I about guess, but I don't, uh, Kofi I'm, but how do you cast Rihanna in this role and not have her sing and so you're just going yeah, every s- review, you're every sing review. Her two times and that's <laughs> every review says, I was really expecting like uh-huh. uh a song during the funeral like that was gonna be like her number you know because like this has a musical i wouldn't necessarily call this a musical because like the musical numbers feel well they're just so like jammed in there there. yeah um but you know after his death i kind of expected that to be her number that would be awesome and that would have been a really good moment yeah it would have been like dr horrible sing-along blog yeah it would have been exactly like you know uh felicia day dies spoilers in that dr horrible has has a song. Yeah. You ever see Dr. Horrible sing along blog? I have, yeah. You, I bet you don't like it. I'm indifferent to it. I really love that. I, really I don't it. love Neil Patrick Harris. I'm not a I'm big not, I'm not, not a, a Neil big, Patrick Harris I'm guy. I'm not a big Neil Patrick Harris guy. I was a big Felicia Day guy for a long time. I and think for the same still a big Nathan Fillion guy. Yeah, why does everyone like way. Nathan Fillion? Oh that's that man just has a chin that can chisel rock. I watched like an episode or two of Castle and I did not understand. I have watched zero episodes of Castle, zero episodes of Firefly. I'm not even sure if I've seen anything Nathan Fillion has been in besides Dr. Horrible, and yet I am obsessed with Nathan Fillion. Huh. That's another man just That explains butt. the statue of him in the lobby of the Pivotal Film Tower, so... Yeah. Uh, a statue, by the way, that you can rub the head of, and then sit behind the uh, other statue we have of Charlie Day, I guess. Don't know why we have that. That's just re- like storage. Um, and wait for the homeless king to come. <clears throat> David Yao. Who's David Yao? He's a, from the Jesus Lizard. Is that a band? It's a band, yeah. Oh. Come on, Mario. Yeah, there's a lot of references I probably didn't pick up in, in the second film we saw this week. The A24 aptly, quickly, fastly released film that was just finished production about a month ago, and then they rushed it out to Is cinemas. Is that true? No, this, this was finished in 2016 oh, okay. and has been sitting on the shelf for that long. Uh, my most anticipated film of the year, David Robert Mitchell's Under the Silver Lake. What the... Who moves out in the middle of the night? Nothing strange about it. She wanted to leave. How does that not make sense? I don't understand why she didn't tell me. Maybe she didn't like you. Maybe she knows you're poor and haven't paid your rent. I found some kind of code or like secret message in her apartment. It means to stay quiet. Our world is filled with codes, subliminal messages from Silver Lake to the Hollywood Hills. Could any of this be connected to Sarah? I know this girl. There's a message in the music. Why do I pause? I like, notice from how, a production standpoint, it's very useful. But it's great. I pause as though I'm going to hear the thing you're going to add in in the edit. Yep. Uh, like I'm gonna be like, whoa, this is a good trailer. I get kind of, I do that too, though. No, it's like, very helpful. There. I'm appreciative. Yeah, um, we're gonna keep. We should keep that all in. Under that. the Silver Lake uh, is the story of Sam, played by Andrew Garfield, um, who, you know, is your typical kind of stoner loser in L.A. Uh, who meets his neighbor Sarah, his beautiful neighbor Sarah. Uh, real, you know, she's she's fine, um, but she disappears. And Sam tries to find her, uh, going into the deep underbelly of L.A. pop culture in film, 
not really so much film, more music, video games, and uh, conspiracy theories, comic books, um, to find out where she went. And under that story formulates a quasi-neo-noir take on Inherent Vice. Definitely trying to be another kind of Inherent Vice style film. Mm -hmm. Uh, Inherent Vice meets Brick, the the L.A. To the point where you and me, to the point where you and me are actively, we're actively discussing off air the various scenes that remind, various scenes and characterizations that remind us of things that happened in Inherent Vice and in Brick. Yeah, no, exactly. Uh, There's some characters that that seem like characters, like Laura's character, like uh, Laura from Brick, uh, the balloon girl in this feels very much like. Uh, Grace Van Patten's character feels very much like a simulator. There's striking similarities. Well, and there's a, there's a scene too on a couch with Andrew Garfield and a hooker that is is very reminiscent of the couch scene with Catherine Waterson and Joaquin Phoenix in Inherent Vice. Yeah. Um, as a quick little side note, we will be talking about David Robert Mitchell's uh, previous film. It follows in about a year because that is one of my highest ranked pivotal films as a spoiler so i guess i have a bit of a bias towards this director um so first let's get your feelings because i think my feelings might be a little more intense. are you gonna weep when... maybe um i i was as i was saying off air i thought it was interesting that my expectations were actively changed my expectations were actively changing as i was watching this movie so um before i went into it i was kind of like well i read the you know the synopsis and i was like this is this movie is my jam like this is i'm all about what this movie is about um, you read the full synopsis like the, the spoilers or just the plot no just okay. kind of like the general plot and stuff like that i was like oh going deep into like these things like can, not so much conspiracy theories but like how all of these these little things connect to each other looking for meaning in all of these small moments and all of these um these disparate things <clears throat> excuse me um, I'm all about that stuff. My whole, almost my whole life is about looking for meaning in things that you shouldn't um, be looking for meaning in. A lot of my problems, um, personally, um, come from that exact same thing. Like looking for meaning in things that you shouldn't, that don't really have any meaning. Um, and sometimes this movie did that really well, and sometimes the movie did it not very well at all. And sometimes the movie seemed like it knew what it was doing, and sometimes the movie seemed like it had no idea what it was supposed to be doing. Um, like the end. And sometimes um, I really liked it, and other times when I didn't really like it, I was largely indifferent to what it thought it was trying to do. Um, I haven't seen It Follows yet, on purpose, um, because I want to be fresh for when we do it for the podcast. Um, I don't know how this, you could fill me in on how this relates, in, uh, you know, to it follows in terms of its, um, you know, composition and, and quality and things like that. I don't think David uh, Robert Mitchell is a great director. I think he's a great s- stager. Um, but there was no, I think a movie like this, if you're going to be looking for meaning in things, should have like moments where. Sam is seeing something like that's kind of transcending normal existence. Yeah. And there's none of those, there's no really, there's no images in this movie that really grab you and kind of shake you and you're like, whoa, look at that, that image. There's some, there's some ideas, there's some ideas. There's a couple of like, 
hints at what those images might have been, but the images don't exist. And it bugs me too. And maybe maybe if this movie and La La Land were made like concurrently, um, which they might have been. I mean, um, I'm sure. Uh, bro, I think maybe Under the Silver Lake was made while La La Land was getting released. Okay. Um, if the, like the observatory stuff bugs the shit out of me because just find another place to find somewhere else to go. I mean, I guess you want to rub the head of James Dean and like all this other stuff, but La La Land leaned heavily on that fucking observatory and won a bunch of Oscars. And now it's just part of like the cinematic landscape. Just find somewhere else to do it. It's too, it's hitting too many notes that a lot of other directors have like already hit. And I'm not sure if he's doing it on purpose or if he's just doing it, um, because that's where that's where the movie takes place, and that's yeah. where it goes and stuff like that. I mean, I, I want to talk first about some of my problems with it because I, you know, spoilers. I really am obsessed with this movie. I really love it, um, but I, I know it's really flawed. Uh, you know, um, there is a lot of films that I really like. I think both of them are going to show up on the list. I actually can't remember if the one does, uh, but, but two films that are really important parts of my life uh, that are love letters to L.A., which is odd, because I was born near L.A., but have spent almost no time in L.A. I guess it's genetic memory from my mom having her grow up hmm. in L.A., or maybe just her talking about L.A. I've been in L.A. Um, once. But Collateral, uh, a movie you hate. I do actively hate Collateral. And yeah. The Big Lebowski, a movie that we do not hate at all. Um, and to a lower degree, a movie I didn't really appreciate while I was younger, another Michael Mann film, Heat, um, all have very deep roots in the, you know, the ethos structure and, of LA and etheralness of, of LA. This movie tries to do that as well, but it doesn't capture it. It captures things about Collateral and Big Lebowski is they kind of capture parts of LA that aren't necessarily well known. They're not landmarks. Right. They are just kind of locations that, if you're familiar with LA, that the kind of blueprint of yes. the film. Hits it exactly. This feels like it's kind of like a tourist guide to LA. Well, I think this, a, and I don't, I really don't want to step on like no, no, your dick, but I, this is oh no, that's my kink. <laughs> um, those movies showed you, and I'm not saying the grid work in terms of like a New York City grid work, no, but they showed you how this city functions. Yeah, I think, and this think movie even, kind of wants to do that on like a like a more hipster level, but it doesn't. It it really thinks it's doing that, but it doesn't do that. It doesn't give you that overview of, like, this goes here, this goes here, you go here, these people do this, and, like, this is how it's structured. It wants to do that, but it just makes it seem like there's a haze of hipster douchiness that's kind of, like, crawling over L.A., and you don't really know how this works or how you get to one place or another. So can he literally walk anywhere? Like, in the yeah, span no, of an evening? That's, that, was, that was odd. Uh, you know, maybe he met... You know, Frank Drebin on his walks. <laughs> yeah. And how the hell did I end up here? Another <laughs> yeah. great scene. Um, and no, and that's, that, that is like my major problem with this film, like, is the fact that it tries to capture this essence of L.A. And L.A. is, is a, you know, films that are kind of centered in L.A. have a characterization of, you know, the people and the characters are influenced by the, the skeleton of L.A. You know, L.A. New York trying to cast us like we're New Yorkers and like, yeah, yeah. like it's it's more on ideology and mindset. Whereas LA feels in a way like the city itself and the layout itself kind of defines the people. Mm-hmm. There's that old SNL joke of the Californians um, where it's oh, yeah, literally yeah, 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 yeah. just them describing how to drive mm-hmm. to certain locations, and that is like an identity thing 
with like Southern California. I was just listening to it. That is like their like consciousness is yeah. based around getting places. I was it, just listening to a podcast where Bill Simmons and Trevor Noah were talking for like 15 minutes about driving in LA. Yeah, I, I still do that. You know, I, I grew up in Western Nevada. So, you know, we get a bit of that, that you know, a lot of people came from there. So it is kind of like getting to locations is somehow like a connecting factor. Mm. Um, and this doesn't strike it. So it does have like an inauthenticness to that. Um, I, I agree that he's not the, I don't think David Robert Mitchell's the, the best director. I think he has a certain visual style that works when it works. It Follows and this film are very similar in their centering of shots. This is a really centered shot film. There's yep. so many shots that are just right down the middle, you know, that follows that rule of thirds and the focus is right smack dab in the middle. And that's, that's bothersome. A lot of like the hobo code stuff in this is, is right there in front of you. And it looks good. It, it, it has looks good. That, it has that Alfonso Cuaron, you know, Roma style nice picture. There's a good but depth it doesn't, to it. But it doesn't add volume or it doesn't add depth to the production. It just mm-hmm. is showing you things. Because I think this is, and I think that's somewhat intentional. I think this is more a film that is focused in kind of the the screenplay and the story coming out and the performances coming out than it is the visuals because the film doesn't try to do anything strikingly visual. Um, I think all the moments it tries to be strikingly visual are kind of throwbacks to late 40s, early 50s uh, noir films. Mm -hmm. Like a lot of those kind of like the drone shot especially where it kind of just pans down into the house and that kind of like voyeuristic style is serves no purpose whatsoever in the overarching narrative, but it's a nice kind of reflection of, of yeah. late 50, late 40s, early 50s noir. Um, contrast that, you know, so this centered shot is kind of his thing. Uh, it works really well and it follows because he's smart enough to kind of have moments of focus and points of focus off screen, keep the camera centered, and then have that focus come into, into the screen, which adds a lot to the tension. Mm-hmm. We'll talk about that in a year. Um, the reason, though, I love this movie, and this guy is quickly becoming one of my favorite just workers in, in cinema, that fucking disaster piece score oh, carries I, this I movie. I thought it was terrible. Really? I thought it was awful. Really? Because I think it's, I mean, and then I, I don't know what you want to do. You want to tell me why you liked it, and I can tell you why I didn't like it? Yeah. Um, he, so he had an interview with Eric Cohn, uh, disaster piece did, um, who is. What is his actual name? Richard Veerland. Um, he's not on the tracks, and he says it has a good. It does a good job of capturing the breadth of the story of the film. Um, it touches on the themes of the film, moving seamlessly in and out of the reality. And this movie does try to carry this dreamlike state, this etherealness to it. And there's points in the story that do that extremely well. There's there's a lot of quotes in there that are that carry that kind of fun. Um, lucid dream state or, or, or kind of like absurdistness um, like where Andrew Garfield's Sam asks if they're going to kill him and he's like no I don't think so maybe <laughs> <laughs> or uh, you know where he's talking to the people and spoilers turns out Sarah's joined this cult thing um, has buried herself deep underneath Mount Hollywood and is waiting to ascend to a new state of reality. He's talking to some people who are about ready to go down there. And the guy talks about, you know, like everything you're searching for in this reality means nothing. You know, you're just a new car, yeah. retirement. And it's just, you know, a sawdust coated, a sawdust um, filled stuff filled rabbit. rabbit. Um, it was very Fight Club, that speech. Yeah, I guess to an extent. But, you know, the images and the. And, don't really carry that dream stateness to it. They don't. 
have a sense of of carrying that theme. Mm-hmm. And to me, the score really does. The score 100% hits those notes of like Big Sleep or Double Jeopardy. And, okay. and it's an homage to that. And in doing that, it feels fake and inauthentic. But that's the point. The well, point to me, I, I do think that's the point. I think, I mean, we'll talk about It Follows, but another reason I love It Follows is that's one of my favorite scores of all time, is that film. Um, and they're two extremely vastly different scores. This, so Disaster Piece is originally actually a video game. Um, mm-hmm. so he did video game scores. I can't remember the video. I think maybe Fez? That's not right. Uh, I will look it up as I'm talking. But in video games, you know, a major point of um, driving the action is, is that score. He was? It was Fez. Good job, Mario. Um, and especially games like that, those kind of side platformers, a lot of the, the music is the story. Mm-hmm. And with it follows, and this, it carries... Oh, this motherfucker's younger than me. It carries... Um, it carries the intention. And, you know, maybe it... it may, I don't, I, I'm excited to hear why you didn't like it, but to have three now scores I have listened to... Uh, I haven't heard the score yet for Hyper Light Drifter. Um, that, that They're so different from one another, but so carry the intention of the creator... Mm-hmm says a lot so maybe in itself like has separated from the work it's not doing anything but we've talked about this in the podcast the most important thing to me is what you're doing to carry the theme of the story yeah, if, yeah. if what you're doing is in service of the thing being told right then i love it okay and this to me works so if that that's way. the case i mean i think it, it, it does that really well in the sense that if it's an i think in, in terms of carrying the themes of the story and also regarding its homages to stuff like you know the scores of the big sleep and stuff like that um I think the score is very confused and matches the con- the general confusion of what this movie wants to be or what it thinks it's doing and what he's trying desperately to kind of make it do. I think I think that's all intentional. I don't think it's intentional at all because it's it's really it really muddles. Like so there's a lot of times where the, like the score will swell up with those very noirish tones and you're just like, "Well, what is the point of this? Is this is this an expression of Andrew Garfield's perception of the world around him? And if it is, why is it in a big sleep-esque kind of, you know, mode? Why, why, why is he hedging towards these big, these noirish motifs when Andrew Garfield is a character like doesn't go that way at all? No, I, He's I, very rooted in like 80s and 90s culture and not... Um, you know this kind of 1940s noir culture. See, I, I did not take it as that. I don't. I don't take the cues in the music and the, the the film actually making itself as being from his perspective, but as from our expectations of what's to come. It starts out with this kind of very base example of a noir story. The audience it it, it makes the assumption that the people going to see this movie are the people who are familiar with the pop culture references. There's. But there's not a lot of. I mean, that's there's thing. not. There's, there's not. not so that's another there's, thing we can talk fun about. Fun little kind of clever things. We there's can talk a nice about little, that later. When he looks at the uh, Legend of Zelda um, map at near the end, mm-hmm. a disaster piece does a nice little cue where yeah, it's, I, it's it's kind of uh, it's the treasure opening music, but it's 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 a it's a take on so it. That's the thing. I think the sound design in this movie is all right. I think the score. Is well, that's, that's a part of it. I mean, that that sound <laughs> cue is a score. Fine. Like, that is that is. But music. it's not. But it's not like. It's music, but it's not the 
that one moment doesn't make me say this movie is really good or the score of this thing is really good. It makes me say, it makes me say exactly what I say about this movie. Sometimes they really knew what they wanted, and sometimes they really had no fucking idea what they were and I would, trying I would, to do. I would agree that that Mitchell's got like a confused. Um, take on this that it's 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 still messy. i think the score supports that confusion in the sense that it's equal it sounds equally confused to me in the sense that in tone and in construction it's not sure what it's where it's going is it going towards this you know uh lcd sound system dance pop that jesus and the brides of frankenstein or fries of dracula what is it whatever whatever that band uh, is brides of dracula that they play, or is it going towards Mario video game music, or is it going towards 50s noir, like, film score stuff? Like, what is it, like, where is it doing? And is it doing, if it's doing all the things, why is it doing all the things? And if it's doing all the things, why are all the things represented in the characters in the movie? I mean, is that why uh, David Robert Mitchell puts in that, you know, um, What's her name? Janet Gaynor? Robert, that, the old film yeah, actress yeah. that her mother wants to send him the, the video cassette of. Um, that he ends up in front of her grave, you know, um, that night. Is that why that's in there? So that it is straddling all of these different periods. Um, and if that's the case, why? Is he saying that L.A. somehow straddles all these different periods? That pop culture is in and of itself an amalgam of you know, 60 years of, of, of pop culture history. I don't know. And the score supports for me, supports that idea, that confusion more than it supports more than it underscores any of the, the themes of the individual themes that Robert David Mitchell might be trying to, to draw out from it. See, and and to me, the score just highlights that confusion, but it it works in the sense of, I think, I think the narrative viewpoint of this film isn't Sam. I think it is told to be us. The, our expectations of what we're seeing and how not really those expectations are subverted, but weirdly told in this kind of like fever dream nightmare state of going down this confusing, bizarre, absurdist role that it goes on. Um, and the score to me highlights that in, in, in the fact that it, it, it captures what I'd kind of expect the, the musical cues to be from that viewing, mm-hmm. from going in there and, and, you know, having those expectations of the film, having those expectations kind of turn and twist. And it matched kind of like what I was feeling in the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So if it's intentional, then I think I'm right. If it was unintentional, then I guess you were right. <laughs> um, beyond that, performances are all really solid in this film. Andrew Garfield's quickly becoming kind of an actor who's, shockingly melting into everything. And I don't doing. know if I like him yet. Yeah, no, same. But I think he's really good. Um, he's still as my, an actor. He's still, my, he's still my favorite Spider-Man, I think, which is a weird thing to yeah, say. Yeah, he's not my favorite. But I don't have any... I mean, I think Tom... I like Tom Holland. I think Tom Holland's my favorite Spider-Man. But just because I generally dislike all others. I mean, I thought Tobey Maguire's Spider-Man was the, <laughs> the worst, so I can't really well, no, comment actually, on that. Um, I think he's really... I think he's... he's He's really good. I think Topher Grace doing a Topher Grace impression um, actually really works here. That's that's incorrect. Uh, Sh- Shamik Moore is my favorite Spider-Man. Oh yeah, that's yeah, true. He's, yeah, he's, he's my favorite Spider-Man. Spider-Man too. Um, and the then whole, Miles Morales, uh, and and then probably then probably Jake Johnson, and then Chris Pine. Uh, no, I think and then uh, 
Andrew Garfield and, and Tom Holland kind of go back and forth, and then Chris Pine, and then, then Nicolas Cage, and then <laughs> um, Bershaw Lee gets one, even though he was not even Spider-Man. But yeah, we're just going to le- list everyone from Into the Spider-Verse. John Mulaney. Before we get Spider-Man. to Tobey Maguire. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I mean, there's a lot of... I wanted to see more Topher Grace. I'm getting frustrated by how little Topher Grace I'm starting to see in films. Well, we'll go see Breakthrough, and then we'll see lots of Topher oh, Grace. Is he in Breakthrough? I do not yes, want to see he's the pastor. Oh, man. That's, is, that a, is that a pure flick? That's probably a pure flick, right? What's that? Pure flick is the people that are making, they made that abortion movie we'll never talk I don't, about. No, I don't think it is. Uh, I actually think it's a Hollywood, like it's a studio movie. Oh, so it might not be as terrible. It's, it's, we will, by the way, never review a pure, pure flick film on this. I'm a no. Christian, and that shit is garbage. <laughs> I mean, if we really wanted to, we could... No, I, re- I actively refuse to... If they to show up on Prime, support. we can watch them, yeah. No, because even then, it will show up as a Prime view, which in turn will give numbers to, to Jeff Bezos. He will, you know, produce another season of The Expanse for himself to masturbate to. And then he'll realize that Pure Flix got another view and maybe buy another one of their films. Oh, yeah, that's okay. Whatever we I can do, do to turn away from that. Um, um, but yeah, I think he's... I think he's uh, his character. So that's another thing that I have a problem with this movie is that there's no characters. No, there's no they, character. Like the, he didn't. David Robert Mitchell didn't write any characters. He just wrote a bunch of ideas and made a bunch of little ciphers. And there's which like to pass each of them gets through. like two or three scenes. Um, and a lot of its actors I really like, like Topher Grace, Jimmy Simpson, who I'm always really happy to see. Don McManus, who I love. What's Don McManus from? He, well, he was in. I mean, he was in Vice. Um, most okay. recently, he was like one of the, he's the second best thing in Vice, um, but he's from like um, Magnolia and The Shawshank Redemption. He's one of those guys that's kind of melts like, into all. Oh, yeah, he's but I always think he's really good. I always really like seeing Don McManus and things. And he's, he's, your, the, he's your David Morris. Wait, wait, who's David Morris? David Morris is the guy. Oh, David that. Morris. I thought you said David Boris, and oh. I was like, I don't know. David <laughs> if, you, if you really hate David show Morris, me a, show if you me really a, hate uh, David Morris, you're like David Morris, more like David Boris. <laughs> Get fucked, David Morris. <laughs> Whoever hates David Morris out there, you can use that. Also, he's very tall and can hurt us, so we probably shouldn't. Clearly, yeah. And he he take a lot of gunshots to the gut. As we saw last week, he's an intense, intense man, yeah. and he can turn invisible. Also, do you like? I think I think a, a caring theme now is uh, graphic uh, destructions of faces is a is a is a ongoing theme now in pivotal film. That was a weird scene. That was a, a fun scene. I like that scene a lot. The scene where Sam meets the songwriter who is responsible for the production of all the hits. Yeah. Um, Sam is weirdly emotional when he finds out that, that, scene is, that scene is kind of awesome. It's kind of awesome. It's ridiculous. When he sings that Backstreet Boys song, I was like, this, this, this is doing well, it for me. Well, it's great, too, because like, it's While he's holding Kurt Cobain's guitar. And you're just like, is that... I wanted that. And he's like, ah. Uh, and then he sings it. And, and it's he like, like, oh. laughs maniacally about it. <laughs> And then leaning definitely into the Fight Club thing where it goes, uh, it jumps into uh, Pixie's, um, what the fuck's that song? Where's My Mind? Yeah, where's, he does Pixie's Where's My Mind. And then when he says that he wrote Smells Like Teen Spirit, Sam loses his shit, which I don't really get why that happened. He's got a Kurt Cobain poster that he had signed by Francis Bean. Yeah, but it's just, it's goofy. Signed Kurt Cobain, which is Weird. Yeah. Um, but it, it leads to the songwriter getting his, his face graphically s- smashed in. That was, that was odd. Yeah. I mean, so we can, I mean, this is actually a really good transition into another thing that I really wanted to talk about with this movie. And maybe we break this episode. Maybe we, <laughs> maybe we break this out because it's really stretching it. Um, 
I don't think the movie... I think there's a really good movie contained within... And maybe it's already been made, and someone could you know, send us a message and tell me what that movie is. Made about the idea that like all of these things are connected. That there's like, you know, you find a zine that really resonates to you, and then you start noticing things all over the place. And, you know, we have a friend who's kind of like this, and there's all these little clues all over to show you how the world really exists. One of the things I didn't like about this movie is that it just keeps escalating. I think, and then, I think a lot of people would say that movie, to a degree, is upstream color, but I, I would disagree. Yeah, but it's... Uh... It doesn't deal with the conspiracy theories of the real world. Yeah, it's, it's like... It's, it's a 100% it's... conspiracy theory-feeling movie, and right, a paranoia-feel feel film. And it's not about paranoia as much as it's just like, well, that squirrel fell from that tree. What the fuck does that mean? Yeah. You know what I mean? Or like, there's this thing, and then there's this, and then what... If that's if this is this and this is this, then what is, you know, what does that mean? Um, the movie could have escalated with te- the tension and the drama without escalating the way that it did. You know what I mean? So the fact that he kept finding the song, like he kept finding like the next huge level to this conspiracy that didn't really have to exist. You know what I mean? Like, if the spirit conspiracy doesn't exist, but he thinks it exists, and the movie trusts Andrew Garfield enough to let him um, perform that a character who thinks that his world is kind of spiraling out of control, you know what I mean? And where there's, there's all these connections. You don't have to have, like, a secret bunker where there's a, a cult is going to live for six months until they die. And then, like, another a shack in the Hollywood Hills that can only be discovered using a Zelda map on top of... Which, once again, can I talk about, like, following the, the themes of Inherent Vice, like, leading into, like, a cult kind of religion? Well, that's... I mean, so the beauty of Inherent Vice, I think, is that... So it gets to a point... Does this movie make you appreciate Inherent Vice more? Yeah. Although I've been, imp- I, I I do appreciate Inherent Vice more. So you're finally more so yeah. you're finally becoming right on your opinion. No, that my that's opinion one of the is best that Paul my, Thomas Anderson films. No, it's not because it is. It is. my opinion on Inherent Vice is still that Paul Thomas Anderson did it wrong. It's too serious. The tone is not right. You're just um, he should have made it. He should have made it pre the you master. Just, you just need to get over your 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 pension. It's not a pension like, thing. It's a tone thing. The tone is wrong. The tone is perfect. The tone is not perfect. Um, We're gonna have an Inherent Vice special episode someday. We will. Good. Um, because we'll have talked about every other Paul Thomas Anderson movie except for that and Sydney. Heart 8. So we'll do a, a Inherent we'll Vice. About, we won't talk about Heart 8 either. No, no, we'll do them both. No, that's yeah. what I'm saying. So we'll oh, do no. both things just to make sure we round it out. Um, Did we talk about Magnolia? Yeah. Oh, okay. We haven't, but we will. Okay. <laughs> um, this, is the, this is the episode for people who are trying to figure out our list, man. Yeah, if someone's got a spreadsheet. It's like, <laughs> <They're> like, ah, <laughs> new information! Um, that's, yeah, the, that's, that the, that's the real conspiracy. Exactly. Um, Wouldn't that be awesome if there was a person out there trying to figure out a list? I I hope there is. We'll make a contest at episode by episode fifty. If you can guess our top five each, uh, you will get. You can come on the show. We can do. We can do an episode. Of and this. I will buy you any beer you want. There you go. Uh, MSRP less than one hundred and fifty dollars. <laughs> um, there was a descending. There's a dissension after. Um, it hits the point. In, in inherent vice. I don't even remember what the point is because it's so convoluted. But after that, it comes down. And you kind of realize that the conspiracy was not so conspiracy-ish. It was just connecting dots that didn't need to be connected. No. You know what I mean? This movie is the opposite. 
in the sense that he keeps presenting things. Everything escalates. Everything escalates. And he is not connecting dots for the sake of connecting dots anymore. He's connecting dots because every time he connects a dot, something totally fucking weird happens. And I think I think that kind of carries over. Like, this movie is flawed in the sense that it tries to be very absurdist and does the absurdity by escalating everything. And that kind of doesn't work. But it's so serious. Is it? Like, me and you disagree about this. I think this movie's having a lot of fun. I think Gar- Andrew Garfield, for sure, is having fun. Like, there's, there's a fun he's having with this that's, that I like. Yeah, like, there's, I guess. There's, there's a sense of, like... He doesn't have to do like, anything. Look, compare him to Joaquin Phoenix in Inherent Vice. Joaquin Phoenix, like, kind of buries himself But you, Joaquin Phoenix never has fun. Never. <laughs> I mean, even in this Joker trailer where he's smiling. I don't think he's having fun. When people are breaking down that trailer on Reddit to be like, oh, it's a forced smile. It's got to be about the story. And it's like, it's Todd Phillips. There's nothing about the story that matters in this film. Um, but yeah, so I, I agree there. But like I said, it's, it's a, I, would, I don't know what else we can really say about this. I, I would very much suggest people watch it. It's a long movie. It is almost not, two and a half hours and long. And it's not, it's boring. But it doesn't. While like, being not, it's like boring and not boring simultaneously. That makes it's any it's sense. dragged. This is going to be the year of really long movies that are kind of boring, but then you realize that you're never bored. Dragged across concrete was really similar in that it was you know almost three hours long, yeah. and you never really kind of realized it was three hours long. It's almost it's oh it's like a half hour longer than this with half the scenes. I will say this though, it was my most anticipated movie of the year. Not my not my top film of the year. That was a disappointment. Spoiler alert for, you know, our Thanks. January 20-whatever podcast. Right now, David Robert Mitchell is shaking his fist at Steven Soderbergh. Oh, he still is. No, High Flying Bird is still, still my still my I haven't. One. I still haven't seen anything that I'm willing to say. That's well, I mean, it. I can say it's my favorite of the year. I mean, obviously, that can change at any moment. I just didn't like it enough to even say that. I would say, I would say at some point this year, Under the Silver Lake was displaced as my most anticipated film. By the movie we will be talking about next week on a special episode, Avengers Endgame. That's right. I became one of those people. <laughs> I'm fucking stoked for that movie, man. I just, I, I want to see weird dudes cry. That's what you're looking forward to Avengers I'm, Endgame? I'm looking forward to, like, the movie hitting a point and just, like, looking around and seeing a bunch of guys in beards um, that are going to the record store right after they leave there and just oh, weeping their eyes out. That yeah, that their character that they love, their their reason for living over the last, or even that the movie sucks, and a bunch of people in the I theater hope, kind of. I hope it doesn't. I suck. hope it, I hope it does suck, and I hope a bunch of people in the theater are just like, oh my god, I just wasted ten years of my life 11, watching all of these eleven movies. years. Uh, that's what I hope. I hope it's good, and I hope everyone has a fun time. <laughs> I, I hope, hope. I hope when their favorite character dies, spoiler Iron Man, no spoiler Captain America, he's gonna get sent back in time. My prediction, hard predictions, ready. We're gonna do quick hard predictions of Avengers Endgame. Okay. Iron Man, none of none of the really major characters die. Iron Man just retires. Captain America gets sent and stuck back in time. Film ends with Captain America having his dance with a with a Piggy Carter. That's how Endgame ends. No, that's not gonna happen. Well, what's your? What, that's not gonna happen. Dude? My prediction, is just, or what that, I it's want, just, it's just that's not gonna happen. What I want is for Ultron to come back and play a major role. What I want is for Ultron to come back and bring Rachel back from the death and the DC universe and then just fuck her on a desk. 
Maggie, Maggie Gyllenhaal, my, James Spader. It's a little secretary reference my, for you. What I want, actually, what I want That's to happen good, is like you like that movie, Secretary. That's it's good, fine. Uh, uh, it's fun. It's not fun, but it's fun. It's, it's weird. Mean, yeah, I. It'd be cool if they introduced. It'd be cool in like the wrong way if they introduced one of the other Marvel franchises into it. Like if the Fantastic Four just showed up or like Silver Surfer like, came out of nowhere. I, I like, whoa! I do kind of think they're gonna like lead into the next series of of. Marvel at the like post credit thing, and I do think it's going to be Galactus. That's also my hard prediction. Galactus will be Oscar. The second. I, oh, that's Apocalypse. Apocalypse. Who, is there, did they do a <laughs> Galactus was, movie yet? Uh, no, Galactus was the throwaway villain in Fantastic Four: Rise of the Silver Surfer. So maybe Lawrence Fishburne him? will play the Silver Surfer. Nothing played Galactus. Galactus was played by uh, CGI Cloud. Hmm. He wasn't even a giant. He was a CGI Cloud. It was I hope very this is what I hope happens, and then we have to stop. Um, I hope that. While we just have to stop the podcast. While they're while they're fighting Thanos in space, somehow, or while they're fighting Thanos anywhere, somehow the events of the Fe- the Dark Phoenix movie X Men movie kind of like shows up. And by the and events, they're just like hey hey hey, stay on your own side of the street. <laughs> by their uh, by the events, you mean just that film existing happens. It just I hope actually, just tumbles and gets thrown into it. After seeing Nicholas the Hobbs, Hobbs is like what? After watching the Hobbs and Shaw trailer yesterday, where oh Idris Elba says God. I'm Black Superman, That's... I kind of hope those two universes now meld. If we could get Dom in his car fighting Thanos, I'd be good with it. People people take this stuff the stuff way too seriously. This fa- the fact that anyone thinks that this Fast and the Furious movie is like going to be like a good movie is nobody thinks it's going to be a good movie. They just think it's going to be stupid fun. But is that stupid fun? It just seems so like a waste of time. Roman Reigns is in this movie, man. Roman Reigns. Does he play Roman Reigns? He plays the big. Is that the new thing though? We're just going to throw a wrestler into a movie? He says "ooh" in the trailer. His wrestling catchphrase is "ooh." We'll be right back with our number sixty-six. Everyone remembers their first, their first kiss, their first taste of beer, their first confirmed kill in a battle zone. For me, in this podcast, with film being so important, the first that I remember is my first Disney film. First Disney film I ever saw that would lead into a not as intense but quasi-love affair with Disney. And... In that would kind of spark my interest in the other parts of film. Because Disney, for all of its magic or what have you, is really good at breaking down the pieces of a film into its component parts. You know the music, because the music is obvious. You know the voice acting, because the voice acting is obvious. You know the shot composition, because the shot composition is obvious. There is no subtlety in Disney, Disney films. You know... You can really tell that the word sex is written in the dust when uh, the lion drops down in The Lion King. My first was Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. Come celebrate with the fairest of them all, the merriest of them all, and the scariest of them all. The 1937 Disney film, uh, the first significant Disney feature film voted by the American Film Institute, um, has one of the the greatest uh, American animated film, which is absolutely incorrect. The greatest? The greatest. All right. Um, Good work, Disney. It is the story of 
You fucking know the story. Do we have to describe the story? Snow White is a princess who's lonely. She has an evil queen. Is that her mother, then? Her stepmother. Oh, okay. Um, you know, the queen is like, who's the fairest mirror? And the mirror's like, it's not you, bitch. And, the, you know, Snow White ends up just wandering around, eventually eats an apple, gets woken up by a kiss, which is problematic now in modern day. I think the whole movie is problematic now in modern day. Yeah, it's very problematic. Uh, eventually, the, the queen falls to her death in the end. And everyone lives happily ever after. Mm-hmm. This is not a good movie. It has really good musical numbers. It looks pretty. Well, so I mean, that's an interesting it thing. It definitely can stay in 1937, where yeah. it belongs. But Pivotal Film, for me, represents the movies that are a turning point sure. in a lot of ways. They're, I have those films that are the turning points in history for me. Uh, the, the films like Bicycle Thieves or Metropolis were turning significant turning points in the history and the perceptions of people. There are films that are turning points in my ideology. This, you know, uh, my thought process of film and uh, not my thought process of film, but my thought process in life in general. Films like, I guess once again, Bicycle Thieves and Naked Gun to an extent. Um, And then films which changed my perception of film, which Uh is my... Outside of Frisbee, my top hobby in life. This is one of those. This, I think, Scream, and once again, Naked Gun, are the three films that kind of made me love film. Mm -hmm. You know, I watched Snow White first when I was four, I Mm -hmm. think. My first time I remember it was when I was four. Also, sorry, Batman Returns is another one. I don't think that shows up on my list, but Batman Returns is another pivotal one, but I just couldn't justify it after rewatching it. Uh... And this was the movie that made me realize things. Realize the, uh, as a kid, I couldn't, you know, express how I was feeling, but it made me pay attention to the story. It made me follow a narrative. It's Mm -hmm. a short film. It's 83 minutes long, but it captured my attention, and I was able to watch it multiple times. Never one of those kids who watched the movie over and over again until... I was 12, and Halloween H2O came out, and I watched that five times, like, in a row <laughs> for some reason. Wore out the VHS, actually. The only one of two VHSs I wore out, Titanic being the other one. First tape of Titanic, end of first tape, you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> 1998, yeah. You're you know a big Billy Zane fan, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I wish, actually, if that Billy Zane had been asked to be painted like one of his French girls, that would probably worn out even quicker for me. <laughs> um, but... It is the movie that, for all of its flaws, it is a very problematic film now in terms of its statements of class and... And beauty. Beauty and, you know, (laughs) um, consent being a big one. (laughs) She doesn't doesn't necessarily want to be kissed. That's all I'm saying. Oh. He just kisses her without... Yeah. Asking. Harry Stockwell is a real fucking dick. The idea of... uh dwarves being able to manufacture science fiction like dome to put over (laughs) over snow white but also you know like ableism the fact that the dwarves are 100 percent just there to support this beautiful woman well Uh, i mean i also had a big i had a question about why and they're like they they say in the thing they don't know why they're mining all these jewels what do they do with them where do they go what's the purpose what's the purpose grumpy just wants to have him and hold him tight to himself. 
And oh man, I'm looking at a real creepy photo of Walt Disney right now. It makes him look like a like I'm looking at the Wikipedia page. And he kind of looks like a guy who watched Scarface too much and wanted to be Al Pacino in Scarface, but mm-hmm. is kind of still a, a sad uncle who hates Jews. <clears throat> um, and that's what he looks like. Uh, yeah. That's great. Uh, I mean, I think, the, I think Snow White, as the characterization of Snow White, the, I think the performance is also equally problematic. Like the ditzy yeah. kind of like, <laughs> what is this? <laughs> yeah, she's not a likable character. Oh, she's in, in terrible. The, yeah. She's... Awful. I actually watched. I watched this, and then for some reason, I watched a movie that I now forget the name of. It was a Charlize Theron, um, Kristen Stewart kind of remake of it. Um, oh, Snow and the, Snow Huntsman. And the Huntsman, yeah. And that's actually a better movie. And that's weird to say. It's weird to say that that movie's better than Snow White, mm-hmm. but it's actually like gives her some. Like everyone criticizes that movie for turning into kind of like a warrior or whatnot, but. It's kind of nice to have. Just a, give her something to do. Yeah, she she's, sucks. She's a, she's a person, like in Snow White and the Huntsman. I mean, I know we're. we're it's not but, even no, fair really, to make really this Really quick, comment. before yeah. before we before we argue about it, uh, we're not going to argue about. It, but this is a film that's so simple and so base in its ways that it's just is a good introduction to film in general, and it would lead me to watching other Disney movies that are at times great and at times problematic that we'll talk about later. Um, a couple. About about eight weeks, we'll talk about my next Disney film, which is quintessentially probably my second. I think is the second best film in terms of the Disney panth- like pantheon. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this it just shows up because you have those films that, for all their flaws, open doors to you. Yeah. Snow White, yeah, yeah. so simple, so unassuming that it for any kid it just. Opens a door. Yeah, I mean the thing that I now let's shit on it. <laughs> you know, that's the thing. It's before I even say anything. It doesn't even seem fair to shit on it because it was a completely different universe in nineteen, like in the nineteen thirties. America was has no comparison to now. Um, you know, the thing Adolf I, Hitler probably wasn't even known by a lot of people at this point. That's true. Isn't that weird? Thing the thing that? that's weird about the, the two things that jumped out at me when I was watching this movie: how much I hated Snow White, how much like I just think Snow White is a terrible fucking character. And they did a terrible job with her, and everything about her sucks. The other thing I think is weird about this movie, though, is that it's really, it seems really well made. The fact it had six directors. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> even if, well, even if it had six directors, it I seems... I mean, obviously the director is just the animation. Yeah, thing, yeah. But... It seems really well made in the sense that um, for what it was doing, like, it doesn't have a lot of scenes. It is 83 minutes, but... A lot of that stuff is contained in like five or six like major scenes, and the scenes really go on for a long time. You know what? Yeah, that's a weird thing. It was a one and a half million dollar movie, and I think that might have been in nineteen thirty seven mm-hmm. money. What was that spent on? Because it's not complex I, animation. There's but the nothing... animation's really the animation's really clean. Which it is I think clean, is but there's big, a lot of like I think it's a big deal. I mean, a lot there, of backgrounds that are being reused. There is, but they look but they look good. And I think, and I, maybe that's not fair for me to say because I, I watched the DVD that was just like you know the fiftieth or whatever the anniversary, I believe seventy fifth anniversary was, release. This was shot on digital, right? It was uh, the first film shot in digital. Yeah, it was drawn. It was drawn on a tablet. Yeah. So um, there's there's all that to consider also. So I mean, I don't know how fair it is because they may have cleaned up. Like the version I yeah. watched, it may be very clean. But I was like, this I wish, is I really wish there's somebody right now looking up. Like I think they're fucking, they, they're they, wrong about this, right? Uh, I don't think they did their research. Um, 
Was this also filmed in Cuba? Yeah. And Donald Glover plays all the characters. He's all the dwarves. Um, I mean, he's going to be Simba, so why it's not? It's very clean. It's a very clean, cleanly put together. Yeah. Uh, and even in, in, in its cleanliness, which is a stupid thing to say, um, some of those scenes are very effective. Um, which seems weird because it's just this, like you said, it's a simple, weird Disney movie. Um, but like a lot of the Queen stuff is really, it didn't scare me because I'm a grown-up. Um, and it didn't even scare me when I saw it as a kid because I didn't care. But um, it's effective. It's it's effective yeah. animated filmmaking. You know what's fun, though, to come back to these movies when you're an adult who thinks about stupid shit versus when you're a kid? So this takes place on, I'd assume, Earth, right? Uh, yeah, some version of Earth. Yeah, I'd assume like our Earth. Uh, some magical form of it. And they talk about the eternal sleep, like she'll always be in the slumber. So that's unending. But eventually the sun will expand. And I thought about this while rewatching it. Eventually eat up our, our sun. Like eat up our earth. Yeah. Doesn't that kind of break the magic of it? Like, like knowing... That she's going to die anyway? No, but like there won't be an eternal sleep because eventually she'll just die. So the queen is... There's, there's like a logical fallacy there, right? Well, there's a logical fallacy also in the sense that... It's not eternal. She'll eventually... She'll sleep for a period of time, and then she will be consumed by a ball of fire. And then yeah. the sun will die out. There'll be heat death. Entropy will happen. That won't be eternal sleep. That would be a sleep for, a well, st- so for some point in time, is, and then death. My question would be, you could extend it to the, the biology of the whole thing, in the sense that if they're leaving her... So they constructed a dome for him, left her outside. Are the dwarves immortal? Like, I is it so? Is it unbreakable glass? Is she, is she like because at she's some still, point, she's, all the dwarves are gonna die? There's biological function still going on, right? Like she's got again because the dwarves age. Like, do we have older right. dwarves? And so those, we have those, younger dwarves. Unless and the she's animals, still gonna be like growing hair, yeah, and like nails. She's still if the animals I assume gonna be shitting herself and, and pissing herself. If the animals aren't protecting her. That glass, I mean, the tree that it's next to is going to fall down at some point. It's going to break that glass. And then at some point, her body's just going to rot. Yeah. So she might, maybe she's not going to die, but she's going to rot and, turn, and, she, and she's, become of the earth, right? She's going to die. There's going to be a point where, Maybe you know, she doesn't. But like an asteroid, like in the law's average, eventually a rock is going to hit the earth. But maybe if the, if the sleep is so eternal and to the point where like... She'll be floating in space? Like you're saying there could be a... particles sec- of her will be just... Asleep? Asleep through, in the continuum that is space. So where, pray tell, in the Snow White universe, does consciousness rest? Is it not a, a bodily thing or is it contained within a single molecule? Is, however... Did the evil queen have a sort of network framing to the quantum consciousness of us all, and she actually made that fall asleep? It's interesting that you. It's interesting that you mentioned this. This is not interesting. This is the dumbest fucking. No, no, no it's totally had. interesting because one of the things that I, <laughs> I thought about when I was watching this movie is like, how far does the queen's dominion like extend? Um, where obviously the seven kingdoms. She's she's the ruler of the Iron Throne. Oh yeah, that's we're not talking about that. No. Um, I watched my first episode that ever sit down for it. It's fine. I've literally not seen one second of Game of Thrones and have no desire to. And the way that people it talk is. about it makes me want to watch it less. It's yeah. It's just it's it's not shot well, which bugs me. Just get a life. That's what I have to say to people that watch television. Really attractive people, though. Like everyone on that show's very attractive. 
So they got that going for him. Good job, HBO. You still, you still, good work. You, you, you still got that early '90s Red Shoe Diary. Was that Red Shoe Diaries HBO? You still got that early '90s uh, tax demographic down. Yeah, you still got that. You still got that going for you. Um, you know your wheelhouse. I was you thinking, fucked up with Sopranos. You got back on track. Yeah. I was thinking when I was. Because it doesn't seem like she rules anything. And you would think that if she ruled the dwarves, she, if she yeah. knew about the dwarves, that the dwarves would have to give her all those jewels. So what does she even rule? Which made me think that her... What are... Yeah, what her, are... Are they... Her <gasps> dominion is... Maybe the is jewels... The con- is, is, like... Do you think the jewels are what they use to build the dome? I thought that maybe Snow White was herself. What, the, the queen? Like, it was like... It was a, a it was projection like eternal, of her younger self. Like an eternal struggle within? Like, everything's yes. taking place in the evil queen's mind? Yes. And she's making that innocence rest? Ooh, I like this. So, and the seven dwarfs all represent a certain type of a personality. That's true. And the prince represents just a shitty non-thing. The prince, I mean, the prince is... I mean, I think Snow White stinks. The prince is the worst character because he just shows up twice, sings a song, gives her a kiss, and then that's it. It's which also makes me appreciate Snow White and the Huntsman more because like the Huntsman's there can't bring himself to kill her and like in how little the Huntsman's in it, you go like yeah I'd much more care about this fucking Huntsman guy than I do about this like the weirdly rosy cheeked dude. Mm-hmm. The Huntsman's like interesting and the Huntsman's not doing anything because nobody in this movie's really besides Evil Queen and you know the caricatures that are the, the Seven Dwarfs are doing anything. My question is how big was the pig that he killed to put its heart in it that she thought it was a human heart. It must have been a big pig. Or a big heart. It was the uh, it, <laughs> it was the Grinch of the pigs. And it had just lifted the you know, sled of toys for the pigs. Yeah. It, and then was killed. It figured out the joy of pig Christmas. And then... <laughs> and then the huntsman. And literally right after that, the huntsman <laughs> cut its heart out. Snow <laughs> um, oh. so White. It's a good... Yeah. When you look at it this way, it's an awesome movie. Yeah, that's one thing I would always recommend. Whatever movie you loved as a kid, go back to it and look at it through your fucked up 30, 40, 50, 20-something-year-old eyes. And not even like a And then like, up, look at like it a... for a different reason. And everything we're talking about Snow White is bullshit right now. Like, the entire, like, it's a projection of consciousness or whatever. This is just all like us projecting ourselves onto the film. This is us but going it's... under the silver lake on this yeah. movie. But it's fun to do that with anything. That you, especially that you liked as a kid, go back to it and be like, "What's it actually saying?" There's a reason why BuzzFeed still exists because they make articles about like, <laughs> "Was Ren and Stimpy a commentary on the Clinton administration?" And you know, did Foster actually kill himself? Um, we, I mean, I would love to do a podcast where you and me just spend two hours deep diving Ren and Stimpy because there was so much more going on. Maybe we should in do a consp- maybe we should do a conspiracy theory podcast about like just old film and art. No, Get Andrew on. Yeah. We'll guide him to the chair. Yeah, and then he will guide us every topic to the mud flood. <laughs> just more evidence well, of the luckily, mud flood. Luckily, the pivotal film tower is high above the ground. So if another mud flood happens. It was not affected by the mud flood. If another mud flood happens, we will hopefully be on ground level. Yeah. Um, but there's totally. I mean, don't whiz on the electric fence is. Uh, uh, has to be about fascism. It has to be. The game that they play. What? You don't remember that episode? Don't whiz I don't. on the electric fence. You didn't see Red and Stimpy? I did. I just don't remember it. It grossed me out. I still quote Powdered Toast Man and the, <laughs> and the horse to my kids, and they're just like, I don't know what that is. Yeah, Cling tenaciously to my buttocks. I, I was more of an Animaniacs 
guy. I like anime. They my kids also don't like Animaniacs. Animaniacs is they thought great. it was too weird. Although they do like the idea. Your of, kids, yeah. Uh, they, um, they she will love if she's like a big theater film nerd. She'll love that when she's like thirteen. Right, but they like the, when she realizes there's Orson Welles jokes. They like, like the throughout. idea of stuff, but then when you watch it, they're just like, "This is crazy." You know when I loved Animaniacs? The second I realized I loved Animaniacs was there's an episode where FDR. Like gets interrupted by the Animaniacs, and he's doing his—he's trying to do his, you know, the only thing to fear is fear itself. Uh-huh. And he says the only thing to fear is my wife. And I was like, <laughs> if you know, like Eleanor Roosevelt, like the story behind like how much of a hard ass she was. Uh-huh. It's like, I, like and he was like a thirteen-year-old. I realized that, and I was like, this show's great. Yeah, Stevens—that was definitely like Steven Spielberg's like, like all of all his projects. I feel like that was like his baby. Well, I don't understand like his how... life culminated with. But the how Animaniacs. do you juxtapose the like? The attention he, you suggest he paid to Animaniacs and his complete disregard for what, like what Netflix is doing or modern society as a whole. You know what I mean? Like, how do you, how do you reconcile those two things together? Because he's an old man now. But Animaniacs was he so passed, weird. He passed all of his love of things to like Peter Jackson. Not Peter Jackson's like desperately trying to make a Tintin sequel, oh my which God. needs to happen. No, it doesn't need. Yes, to happen. Yes, it does need to happen. No, it doesn't. Tintin is fucking. You see Tintin? Yeah. It's how weird. many times? Once. I've seen it six times. For me, it's there was great. no difference between Tintin and that Final Fantasy movie that they came out. That came out, like, when Final Spirit Fantasy... Spirit Awakens or whatever? The Spirit... Yeah. Of the just the vacant stairs and weird gray computer Get, get out of your uncanny skin. valley. Read yourself some Tintin, because that was one of the greatest, also problematic, comics ever written. And appreciate the love of Tintin. We'll be right back with Tom's number 66. Welcome back. My number 66 is uh, Inception. We create the world of the dream. We bring the subject into that dream, and they fill it with their secrets. Then you break in and steal it. Well... It's not, strictly speaking, legal. It's called Inception. Directed by Christopher Nolan. Um, Released in 2010. Uh, It's got all of Christopher Nolan's team working on it. Uh, So Wally Pfister does the cinematography, music by Hans Zimmer, Lee Smith's editing. Uh, It won four Academy Awards for cinematography, sound editing, sound mixing, and obviously um, Has Lee Smith won an Oscar yet? I don't know. I don't think so. Um, I always feel like all of these people that do a lot of really quality work at some point win their Oscar. He he did. He he won it for Dunkirk. Okay, so they oh awesome. Yeah. Another Christopher. That makes Nolan. that makes that's fair. Yeah. Um, I I suppose this movie is this movie is this is not a movie I saw in theaters. It's not actually a, a movie I even remember seeing, like the specific moment that I saw. Inception. Um, I didn't see it in theaters because it was 2010 was the year my daughter was born. Lee Smith's editing Dark Phoenix, by the way. So actually, that movie might be okay. It will not be okay. He maybe can it's not gonna be salvage okay. something. It's not going to be okay. last X-Men movie he did was First Class, and that was the last good X-Men movie. I don't think there's been one good X-Men movie, but that's... Passable X-Men movie. He's also doing 1917, which will be... Which will be good. I think. Which we're excited that. for. Yeah. Um, one take. What was I saying? Oh, yeah. So my, uh, my daughter, when this movie came out, I think my daughter was three months old. 
So I wasn't going. This to, is, I wasn't going to movies this back is then. For all of our pivotal film listeners who care about the relationship between me and Tom, the the last movie I saw in theaters before I met Tom. That's true. Which and is I think why it was, this is why it's on your list, right? I think I mean, so. Just, Subconsciously, just I think I I knew that when I hired you. I was like this the, guy just the saw schlubby, Inception. chubby, fat. I was fat at the time. Guy came in and was like, "Are you scared of Inception?" And I was like, I "No, I want to see Inception." And then you told me all about it, and, and I, I just stared around at all the women you had hired at the bookstore. And was like, "I need to leave." Um, I don't know if it's impo- if it's possible to kind of elaborate on like what the story is for Inception. Um, only because it's so complicated. I mean, suffice it's, it to say, it, it's so complicated that a city folds in on itself. A city folds in on itself, which is kind of cool. But actually, it's one of like the least cool things. Even though it looks good, the least cool things I that think kind it of looks happens fine. in this movie. It looks it, that is something about this. They the didn't effects, improve, but they didn't improve it for Doctor Strange. Visual effects don't hold up. For this, I think I they think. do. Well, which ones? Which specifically? No, which, I think I think it still looks like there's like you know we talked earlier about um, the Uncanny Valley with Adventures of Tintin. Uh-huh. Uh, like for some reason, that is like some weird uncanny valley for me, where it's just it's so unnatural and weird looking that it feels like a video game. Well, there's a bunch of that stuff where I think it's supposed to. It looks like still looks like the Matrix. Kind of, I think the Matrix did something similar with like a city folding in itself. Maybe that was one of the video games around the Matrix. Uh-huh. Um, and it's always looked the same. Like Doctor Strange, it kind of looks like the same shot over and over. Well, again. yeah. So yeah, Doctor Strange is weird because it just seems like they. Um... Doctor Strange doesn't seem active. It seems like they just kind of layered a bunch of things on top of each other. Yeah. It was like visual effects. And even though it looks real to a point, it doesn't look it doesn't look good. It doesn't look exciting. And that's why and I think some of the other visual effects in this movie are, are no, like I think the all the other practical effects I think all the other visual are way effects more exciting than like even the CGI effects such as the crumbling city are fucking amazing still. Oh, it's great, yeah, yeah. But, like, the, the folding city, there's something about that There's that something about a, a folding a city in half that's just kind of like, all right, yeah. that's, okay. Um, Hollywood, stop folding cities in yeah. half. Yeah, I don't think they ever will because I think they think that's a mark of something. You know what they should do? They should uh, fold it the other way. Yeah, fold it in half and then walk over the edge. Yeah. That'd be good. Like a flat earth. Where Shel Silverstein is. Um, nice. Um, so, in this movie... It's not the future per se. It's not modern day per se. It's not the it's, past. It's, a, it's like a it's like a weird. Universe. It's like yeah. a concur- It's like one of those where they've developed the ability to parallel kind of, universes. They've developed the uh, ability to um, inst- um, instigate a kind of dream sequence at at will. Are we are we willing at some point after we talk about the film itself to talk about the the psycho- the philosophy of the film? Sure, because I, I want to deep dive into. I think this. it's part of it. The philosophy of it is... Has this like movie fucking freaked me out as a kid? Like, not as a kid, as a 20 Well, and so that's the thing. So, three-year-old. Um, they've, we'll get into that. Right, let me just get through the thing. So they developed... They, they can get into people's dreams. They can manipulate people's dreams. You can have... Um, you know, in, uh, uh, you can just kind of fall asleep dreaming type of thing um, using these box and chemicals and all this other stuff. It's a, I mean, it's, it's a it's commodified thing. I think this movie's so bred into the cultural synapsis now that the word inception is, is it's just is people known, know knowing right. what it is it's um you know so leonardo dicaprio um as dom cobb and his team you know featuring joseph gordon levitt and ellen page and tom hardy and um Dilip rao um they are tasked by ken watanabe's character saito to go into the mind of uh robert fisher who is the son of a like a media mogul to uh 
incept him, meaning implant the idea in his head to break up his father's this is, company. And this is what, one of the last two major films of Pete Postlewaite? Yes. One of, I think that's an actor who's going to be forgotten, which makes me sad. Because he was fucking fantastic in almost any... He was one of those actors we talked about. Every time you saw him, you were like, oh, you're like this, he's, is, this is going to be good. Yeah. Like, I don't like the town, but I saw Pete Postlewaite, and I was like... Pete Postlewaite's good a good actor, yeah. yeah. Um, and so they, they develop a scheme in which they're going to incept Robert Fisher with this idea. Uh, this involves three layers of dreaming. So there's the regular state, there's the first dream state, there's a second, which is the first dream state, which ends up being a rainy day in a city um, where they discover that Robert Fisher has um, developed defenses against um, extraction. Like, so people reading his mind or going into his mind using this dream technology and extracting ideas and things. Um, they also there confront Dom's or Cobb. I'll just refer to him as Cobb's. Um, some of his problems he's having in his subconscious, which we'll go into later. Um, they then go down another level, which takes place in a kind of hotel room or a hotel scenario. From there, they go down another level, which takes place in a snowy James Bond-esque fortress Which scenario. takes place in Set Piece the movie. <laughs> set Piece the movie. From there, ultimately, spoiler alert, they go down another level into <sighs> Cobb's subconscious, um, where kind of all hell breaks loose and the movie ends and we all have lots of questions. Um, it's an action movie. It's my favorite kind of action movie in the sense that there's no stakes. Um, they develop yeah. some stakes later in the movie, but if you die in the dream, all the action takes place in the dream world. If you, and, and it's from a kind of white blood cell type as it's described, um, a person's consciousness trying to fight off the infiltrator of that consciousness which makes a lot of sense and is awesome and it means that like nobody really dies so like the gun fighting and stuff like that can be is all in your head it's not real everyone um, dying is like I, I assume Nicolette would have no problem with this movie because it's yeah I mean all the people dying in the in the movie all the people dying are, are just parts I think of a person's if, if anyone doesn't imagination like this, if anyone doesn't like action movies at all this is still an action movie you know what I mean it's still a Christopher Nolan movie it's yeah. got action it's got lots of big guns um Action scenes, car chases, blah, blah, blah. How many people die in this movie? Like two, maybe? Just Pete possibly. I mean, I guess you could say... In real life, Mary, just him. You see Marion Coltyard's character's death. Coltyard dies, yeah. yeah. But she's... I mean, that's a different That's a, that's a, that's different a flashback, thing too. but... Um, so it has that going for itself um, in terms of, like, my being able to enjoy it. The reason this movie is on my list is kind of... When you just kind of said, like, talking about the philosophy of it, the philosophy freaked you out... I kind of knew what this movie was about because I saw it last, maybe I saw it like two years after it came out. Just really? kind of getting around to it. Did I, you see this after Dark Knight Rises? No, uh, yeah. Uh, no, well, I didn't. No, I definitely saw it before Dark Knight Rises because I didn't see Dark Knight Rises in the theaters either. Um, I was just, when I... Was Tom Hardy a thing yet when you saw it? No, it was Dark Knight Rises. I remember Dark Knight Rises being his first kind of like Tom Hardy well, this was this What's was he the, doing like, like one of the reasons I really love this movie is because of Tom Hardy, um, because he's doing his actual voice. Yeah, and like, fucking, we talk about charisma, but like, that man is, that man could could enter the twenty twenty election. And I'd be like, Tom Hardy, you're not American, you can't do this. this he'd is, be like, I'm gonna run for president. And we're like, you know, what, Tom Hardy, 
I mean, okay. This is one of those things. This is a movie where me and you maybe should have <laughs> we should have created an outline for how we're going to talk about this because this is a full. This movie is just all charisma. I mean, all of these no. actors and actresses are so charismatic. Like even and, Ellen. Uh, I was going to say maybe Ellen Page. I, see, I disagree. I think Ellen Page, when she shows up in this movie, is like a fucking spark. Yeah, but comparing like, her, just, comparing her, this the the charisma she brings to this compared to um, David Slade's Hard Candy is night and day. She's I so charismatic in Hard Candy that it's of, like it's a different kind of charismatic. Though she's uh, a straight man in this I movie, and I think she does it extremely well. She is your baseline kind of like introduction to this wild world. But see, here's the thing: I actually sing. I see a kind of, um, yeah, she's a gateway into the world, but she's also kind of a model for how I saw this movie in the sense that every new revelation or every new exposition dump that Christopher Nolan decided to give us because this movie is just one it's a two hour long exposition dump which is great it's a really I mean if you if we want to talk about subversive I guess in a way this is a movie that doesn't it's not subversive in the sense that it does it does anything subversive it does things subversive in the sense that pretend it doesn't ever pretend to be something it's not yeah this movie's so authentic right which is great I mean, so I, think, I think spoilers, real, spoilers, both of us fucking adored this movie. Right? I love this movie. I mean, I, I'm not a big, I like Christopher Nolan movies overall. I hate his follow-up after this. I think Interstellar's, well, I like Dark Knight Rises. Uh, I hate Interstellar, because I think Interstellar is him trying to capture lightning in a bottle twice. Mm-hmm. This movie does 100% This is a kind of everything. perfect, this is a kind of perfect Christopher Nolan movie in the sense that say, it's psychologically complicated and the action is really good. I would say this is, ugh, hot take. The best summer blockbuster movie ever made, hmm. and it made a lot. I mean, it made a lot of money. Uh, so. uh, Jurassic Park was also released in summer. Um, but, uh, but here's the thing: the, the best w- high concept summer blockbuster, right? Movie. And we can talk about that too, because one of the things I learned while reviewing, while looking at reviews of this movie, was that um, a lot of people reviewing it wanted to think this of was it. a this was a picture nominee, right? Yeah, okay. They wanted to think of it as something very specific. Um, so either the summer blockbuster movie or an action movie or uh, like a psychological drama or whatever. Um, and in reality, it's kind of all of those things. It's kind of everything you want like a, a movie to be in the sense that it's really exciting, but it also asks you to do a lot of, of work thinking. And I think that's where the Ellen Page, like the sense of wonder comes in. And it's not in that kind of awestruck, just standing back and looking. It's when she first goes into the Dreaming with Cobb and everything's kind of exploding around her, and then she comes out, and then she goes back in, and she starts designing. And it's that, aha, uh-huh, it's, she's having an active, and this is just how Christopher Nolan's just a genius filmmaker. She's, he's allowing a character in that movie to have an active aha moment, as you get to see her put this world together in the same way that you, through the whole movie, are going to be sitting there and putting this world together for yourself and figuring out how these things relate to it, but also how you relate to it. Yeah. Does any of, does, do any of the levels of dreaming in this movie speak to an aspect of how you view the world? And I think that's the really interesting thing about this movie is that it's not... So, like something like the Matrix, um, the world was constructed for us, or for the characters in the Matrix, and they just live in it. This movie is great because it contends that you are actively constructing your own version of reality, 
And this and this could kind of links to under the silver lake as well. Like, and what does that look like? What does your reality look like? What are and what are the what are the what are the problems that your subconscious, your innate understanding of the world, which you might not even understand, how does that how is that reflected in the world around you or in the world you've created for yourself? And this isn't just something that you can see. This isn't just something you could, you would see in like your subconscious or in your dreams or something like that, but it's in like the choices you make and in your active everyday life, which is where I think the kind of ambiguity of the ending comes into play in the sense that even if he is choosing, because, you know, so that he, he hits, he spins the top and he goes to see his kids finally. And then the movie kind of pans away from the kid. The camera pans away from his kids and settles on the top. It and then good, the top it wobbles. Good, it has a good Sopranos style ending. Yeah. And then the top wobbles. And I guess Christopher Nolan did that on purpose. He said he does not, did it on purpose because he wanted there to be a little ambiguity in the sense of, is Cobb actually still dreaming? There is he still dreaming? But I guess for me, in the end, it doesn't really matter. No, it doesn't. Because he is... Cons- the Which world- is the point. Like- right, Exactly. It's not to, something to figure out, and this is another thing I want to go into if we have if we decide to make this another two and a half hour podcast. I think, that we've I think se- we're down that rabbit hole. My we friend. have sensed in our culture we have decided that we want Easter eggs. We want to be able to round completely how this movie, the world that this movie is constructed, where it begins and where it ends. What's the definitive ending of Inception? What's the definitive ending of Us? What's the definitive ending of any of these movies that you have questions about? You know what I mean? Is the end of Snow White, you know, pulling back and just showing a tiny speck spinning in an infinite abyss of, like, the universe? Calm down, Carl Sagan. <laughs> <laughs> um, and that's, and I think that's, that's, that's why Christopher Nolan's so good, because he puts these, this huge, big, universal question, and he just wraps it up in an ex- expertly... Calibrated action movie. So you think it's wrapped up? Interesting. I don't think it's wrapped up. I think he just, he took this question and he put an action movie around it. See, what I love about this movie, and it is a fucking shame, like, for as much as Christopher Nolan gets a lot of shit for his screenwriting and his storytelling, like, he's He's, universally, he's he's made some mistakes. Yeah, he's universally considered probably one of the best modern directors, which I think is fair. Yeah, I I, I agree. I would agree. Memento is a great movie. Like, we're going to talk about Christopher Nolan couple i think a couple more times in this podcast we're gonna talk about christopher nolan in two weeks i didn't even know that but yeah, <laughs> right. um i think he is a terrific director he is his screenwriting has some mistakes especially like in his batman trilogy there are some noticeable flaws um but uh he got nominated for this screenplay and ended up losing to david seedler for king's speech yeah I want to talk. There's, there's Inceptions. I think is a long conversation, um, but this store like world building. When you so this movie is in the same vein as Matrix in terms of like asking certain questions, and you talk about like wrapping up a story. What's nice about this is it feels like an insertion, like it is in itself a deception. It is a entering into continuous action, a slice of that continuous action for one narrative, and then that continuous action will continue. Mm-hmm. Like, there is no, there is a beginning, but that beginning isn't necessarily the beginning. It is just a beginning that we can jump in on. Mm-hmm. And it is an ending, but it isn't, isn't the ending, it is an ending that will continue on. Mm-hmm. And 
that is perfect fucking world building. To an extent, I would also say something like um, Paul Verhoeven's like RoboCop does a similar thing in the sense of, you know, you jump in on the story of like RoboCop's creation and like this new story, but it feels like a world that exists. Well, that's so that's the this is yeah. one of the absolute best examples of world building I've ever seen. The movie takes for granted that this world already exists and, and that we don't need to have like the technology explained to us. It's just the technology. And it is so utterly genuine in that explanation that it is you accept it. Mm-hmm. And it is earnest and <laughs> completely directed. I also say earnest a lot. It's earnestly uh, competently directed. 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 Um, beyond completely directed. Uh, but it's so honest and sincere in that that you buy it. And then it, it so pays attention to its own rules without leaning into telling you that it's just, it's, well, it is striking. I hate to use the word like masterpiece quite often, yeah, yeah, but like yeah. this is a movie that I watched and like, so I watched this with my mom. I went to the cinemas with my mom for this uh-huh. movie. After I was finished, I was like, that was a pretty good movie. That was my reaction. And my mom was like, are you fucking kidding me? She hit you. No, she's like, that's, Get it together. She was like, that was one of the best films I've ever seen. Like, she was blown away. And it's a movie with age and years, like almost, what, 10 years removed now from this film. I'm realizing is, like, truly a masterstroke. Well, so here's, and the, the, the two things that I always find master, masterful about it, if we want to call it a masterpiece, is how... I mean, I think... Let's set, like, the standards. I think in terms of overall, like... It has its flaws, but I think we could call it a master. Like his, it yeah. is his film. It is his. It's the best it's overall. It's the perfect film. distillation. I have of a higher what film on my Nolan list, but it is his. Does. It is a distillation of yeah. yeah. Um, the two things. It is I, his uh, high quality vodka. The two, the two things I think um, that make it that I always find really every time I watch it. I've seen it a bunch of times since I first saw it. Um, every time I watch it, the things that always jump out to me is that he has turned literally base exposition on how this world works into part of, of the dramatic storytelling here. So even when Cobb is telling, um, I don't, uh, Arid, Ariadin, whatever, Alan Page's, <laughs> Ariadne's, um, yeah, Alan Page's characters, he's telling her how this world works. He's not just telling her how the world works. He's setting up the base drama for this movie. The other thing is and that... And not only that, but he's, what is great about this movie is he tells it through his bias. Everything about this film is great because every character isn't the sto- isn't Christopher Nolan. I mean, they are Christopher Nolan, but they are to- like Christopher Nolan knew to tell it through the character's bias. Yes, and that's which is so fucking clever. And, not and just the fact the- that he does storytelling within dialogue, and not the characters, and not by telling you, but by how they tell you. And you can say bias is another bias works for a couple of characters. So like. In terms of how Eames responds to Thomas Hardy responds to, like what they're doing, how Arthur responds to what they're doing, but the I mean, depth I say, of I would say Arthur is kind of no, not Arthur, the most well no, but he is shaped character. He's a well shaped character. I guess he's not the well shaped character in the sense that you don't get a backstory, but you do get. He he's feels like character he feels like an action hero. No, but he's. A, I think in terms of if you break down all these characters into what they are, um, Arthur is a functionalist. He's fun- yeah, he's functional. And where but- Eames is a kind of pragmatist. He's a pragmatist, but he's really good at it. Where um, Yusuf by Dilip Rao is Which where the fuck is he gone? 
He's know. great in this movie. But he's an ex- he's like an idealist. That you know what I mean? He he's plays, good. He's really good. He and plays within this thing. And where even like... Um, I'm sad Ken that he's Wa- the only person who is not like... Like done. a person still, yeah. Yeah. Um, Ken Watanabe is almost taking... He's doing the thing that you would think that Ellen Page's character was supposed to be doing, but like is awed by it. Ken Watanabe just... Like Saito just wants to be along for the ride. He's just impressed by the technology. He's impressed by... The idea, he's impressed by everything. And he has he, this initial goal, but eventually he's kind of like so wrapped just up like, in it. Fuck, I want to see it. Yeah. Like, he's like, oh, the only way to prove it is to see it. But he, you also get the impression that he just wants to see it. He's just so amazed by this that he's he's just got to look. It all, and also, it feels so sincere that some, like, Ken Watanabe is so sincere in that role that at some point it feels like Ken Watanabe himself was amazed by yeah. this movie. Well, and to the point, it feels like the actor himself just stopped acting. Yes, and to that point, to that exact point, Mario. Leonardo DiCaprio, and we're going to talk a lot about Leonardo DiCaprio in this podcast. I'm sorry. Wait, wait, well, last week, I mean, two weeks in a row. And we're going to do it. DiCaprio. We're going to do another one in like 10 weeks, um, if not sooner. I mean, if you don't like Leonardo DiCaprio, you can just turn off this podcast and you can just stop watching movies. I just really, I mean, I don't really like a lot. I don't like, like a lot of actors in the sense that I don't go see a lot of movies because certain actors are in it. I mostly don't care. I mean, DiCaprio as a person kind of creeps me out with his like hard 27 or whatever rule, but. <laughs> Um, have you ever seen that you Reddit? Like, you ever see that Reddit post? No. There's a uh, data. You, ever, you know the subreddit data is beautiful. No. There is a data is beautiful, which just shows you like data in in graph form, no. and apparently he always breaks up with women when they reach a certain age. That's gross. All right, let's ignore that so we can have a conver- an extra conversation. Here. Um, Mario Leonardo DiCaprio, <laughs> Leonardo DiCaprio as Dom Cobb. Plays the character that used to be, and this is why this script is so good, because, you know, him and Ken Watanabe have this thing like, oh, let's, you know, we want to be old men together. You know what I mean? Let's get out of here so we can be old men and, you know, dream together as old men. Um, Leonardo DiCaprio plays a character who used to be like Saito, who was just awed by what could, what the possibilities of this technology were, literally carried this technology push this technology, the boundaries of this technology, as far as it can possibly go, and every second of every day is reaping the effects of having done that. I mean, of having seen all there is to see, not just like in the world, but within himself. I think people, like the thing that's so subtly told, I mean, it's very obviously told, but then subtly shown, is a Cobb is probably 110, 120 Years old? No, he's point. a regular years old. But no, he's he's, he's 50 no, years he's regular dream. years old. But like mentally, emotionally, he is a hundred years old well, at this he's point. He's just so. I mean, and he's so. And he's so fucking worn down. He's so broken. He's yeah. so worn down. He is just. He is just through. And I, I was actually, and like, slowly we'll get into the philosophy of this. Like, kind of something I want to say for the philosophy discussion. But somebody asked me on a date recently. Right, ladies, I'm dating now, so you're. Windows closing. Um, like, if you could extend your life, like, to be twice as old, would you do that? And I was like, no, I wouldn't. And, like, this expertly shows that in a way. Like, in the Better than the Highlander? I'm sorry. Christopher Lambert could not carry the gravitas <laughs> I needed. Um, but, like, he's so beat down by just experience and the world. And he's trying to, like, he's always putting on this mask. And DiCaprio's so fucking good at playing characters who are just, like, throwing up a mask. 
Right. Um, that like, no matter, even that ending, even the ending, even if he sees his kids again or whatnot after however many years it is for him, like, this man's still fucked. Yeah, and you get the sense... I want to say I want to save I want to save the philosophy discussion for the end of this like discussion. Yeah. I mean I think this podcast is going to be a long one, man. No, we're only at an hour and forty right now. Oh jeez, I have two what? tiny cuts to make. Um, I mean I guess we can wrap up like a kind of. I don't. No, I, I think we need to still talk about the film. There's yeah, so I much mean, to talk about the film itself and then the philosophy. But that's the, the thing. Film. So it's it's a hard film to talk about to describe because you have the different layer like the different levels of plot. Ex- the, this movie I mean, exists on different levels of plot, and it's hard to talk about them like all in one, let's like find a linear things, thing. Let's find the things we really like. I. What makes this pivotal for you? I mean, we could call it like this is a movie that I think might. We're gonna at the end of the year do a podcast of yeah. our top this twenty film, films of the, de- you, of the last two decades. This, this might. This probably will show up on my. It's list. on my list. This film is pivotal for the same reason that you have seen Under the Silver Lake three times, because there is a depth. All legally, I did not illegally stream it. There's a depth to this movie that doesn't exist in a lot of other movies, and there. Uh, uh, this is a, a film. <laughs> not the same reason I watched Under the Silver Lake. No, times. but like so, how where Sam's character Under the Silver Lake is hunting for something. I when I watch this movie, I. Because of the, the oh, so you're you're saying you're like Sam in Under the Silver Lake? I, well, I am. That's and one of the things that disappoints me about Under the Silver Lake is that I do perceive myself as someone who is like Sam, who is constantly doing that stuff, and I perceived Inception as knowing something that I didn't know, and to get into it um, meant going down a rabbit hole that I wasn't able to always go. And this might make me a stupid person or whatever, um, or. You know, whatever whatever re- listeners want to think, well, oh, that guy's pathetic. Um, when I turn this movie on, I start at one place, and by the end of the movie, I'm totally I'm somewhere else um, in terms of dealing with 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 film, with the nature of, of how people like make movies, and like why don't more people take these kinds of chances and make? I'm just making this. You either get it or you don't. I don't fucking care. Um, but also, like psychologically within myself, like how would I? not just how would I, if I had the ability to go down that deep into my subconscious, what would I do with it? But I feel like I have been down there. I feel like I've, on a number of occasions, have... Is it also a snowy, like, Swiss landscape? No, it's it's uh, how dilapidated houses floating on, uh, like, a shallow pool. Um, sitting amongst squared-off buildings that I didn't care enough to design, like, with any kind of detail. Um... But it doesn't make me ask questions about the movie. I'm not hunting for Easter eggs within the movie. By the end of the movie, I'm asking questions about like myself and my relationship to my own reality. As someone who hunts for shit. As someone who is looking for meaning in things that perhaps I shouldn't be looking for meaning in. Like doing this, <laughs> like this podcast, for one. Um, yeah, if you guys haven't realized this, this podcast is just me and Tom working out our own psychological, psychiatric I, issues. I actively think of it, this podcast as that. Um, amongst other so things, for all the like new Hellboy listeners who joined us last week for some goddamn reason, uh, welcome. <laughs> We're sorry for what we said about Hellboy. Now you have to listen to what we say about Inception because you're in my subconscious now. Whether you like it or not, you're in it. Um, and I fucking—I mean, the first time I saw it, I, I loved it. And even this time, when I watched it most recently, 
I had I paused it because I had to go pick up my kids. Um, and I I got up and I felt like I felt like a rush. Like yes, I'm 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 in it. Like I'm in this I'm in this world. I'm gonna dig, and we're all gonna dig together. Me and Ellen Page and Leonardo DiCaprio, and not so much Joseph Gordon-Levitt because he seems like he has a real grasp of it. He's got to figure it out. But like so when that's why I say he's kind of like the action hero. When they movie. go to when they go level to level and they're on that third level and um, Cillian Murphy wakes up and he you know he opens that door. Cillian that Murphy. Yeah, isn't that what it is? Isn't it? I don't know. Is it Cillian Murphy or is it Killian Murphy? I think Cillian Murphy. I've always said Killian Murphy. We could both be wrong. It could be Chillian Mr. Murphy. Murphy, if you're listening to this podcast. Sir, <laughs> Sir Mr. Murphy. Um, Tell us who's right. When he opens that safe, when all of the, you know, they've planned out all of these, you know, there's an intellectualism inherent to the characters in the movie also. So as these things crop up, they're using them to design the next layer, level of the, of the dreamscape. Um, so he punches in this code which is six random numbers that he just made up, you know, at the point of a gun. Um, he punches in that code and he opens that safe and there's like, you know, the will that he expected to be there next to his father's bed. And there's also like the pinwheel that has been in that picture that he's been carrying around um, the whole thing. Um, the depth of emotion there is not so much sadness and it's not so much joy and it's not so much relief. It's a complicated, what's shown on the screen is a real complicated combination of all of those things which would be it's kind of like an unknowable thing that you might only experience in a dream that you might not realize was there because all of your biases and your prejudices that are um closer to the surface of, of how you navigate the world have been stripped away and now you're down to your bare subconscious which i find so you're it's you're confronting the thing you truly want more than anything which i and the thing i find interesting and like let's talk about the philosophy of this film and then we'll wrap up with the film itself. Um, the thing I find interesting is, like, especially now in this rewatch, is Killian Murphy, Cillian Murphy, C. Murphy. Cassillian. Yeah. Based his character off the sons of what he imagined to be the sons of, like, Rupert Murdoch. Mm. And, like, it, it that kind of makes sense, like, on a rewatch now. Um, in the sense of, like, you fucking strip everything down to its base level and you get this. You get, like, this. Not guttural, I guess. Kind it's of like, like a visceral. It's like a visceral kind of. It's un, visceral, vi- undefined it's very, emotion. It's violent, but like not violent against person. It's just a, a nature of violence. Mm. It is Hobbesian. Two weeks in a row, we talk about Hobbes. <laughs> very Hobbesian in its nature. It is. It's. 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 Oh, this movie is a fucking. It's a work of art. You know. It's just. It's crazy in the sense of. It, it does such good work in using people who, you know, like Cobb's team versus um, Murphy's personality and even Sato are, are such different backgrounds, but when everything's reduced, they come down to the same level. And you kind of like strip away those biases and you strip away everything until everything's so base. Mm-hmm. And you get into maybe like my one problem with this film. Um, and I guess this goes into the philosophy of it and everything. Um, so the, the philosophy of this film, and we're going weird this podcast about consciousness and whatnot. This, uh, this says what? That consciousness is not a physical thing, right? In terms of what? Physical how? Well, in the sense of if the technology allows you to jump into another person's consciousness, then the consciousness doesn't exist in the brain. 
Would, would we say that? I mean, you have to connect your head yeah, to the, it. The consciousness... But if you can somewhat transpose your awareness into something else, into some no, sort of network... I, I see that's the thing. I disagree because I think it is a physical thing in the sense that you can, you can access... You can access that person's thoughts and feelings. There, you can touch aspects of that person's consciousness. And if you're able to touch it, it would have to inherently be something physical. But the no, I agree. And, and I agree it would have to be something physical. And but something is, I think it, they is it something in the brain? Yeah, something I think they didn't do enough justice to in terms of like um, the ex- explanation is that the dreamer is technically the architect of controls, these yeah. dreams. So in a sense, you're... I mean, there's a machine involved. Everyone has to connect up to it physically. Yeah. So you but have, you have to get so into even their as head. Ellen like Page's, control. even as Ellen Page is designing what this dream is going to look like, she's pulling from yeah Fisher from Fisher's subconscious at all, or from Fisher's consciousness to figure this out. In other words, there's 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 not a base neuroscience to it. There's something more. There, there's there's like a physics. I don't I don't know. I don't even. Well, know. I wouldn't, like I wouldn't fed, even want to. There's like a there's like a science. I mean, I'm sure there's been many pages written about the philosophy and the the science of inception i mean it's a fantasy film but obviously nolan somewhat mm. likes to focus in somewhat book. of science yeah. yeah like interstellar he definitely hired maybe not the best physicist but he got a physicist bill for nye <laughs> bill nye doesn't i don't think bill nye even has anything beyond a bachelor's degree he's just a, he's got a degree <laughs> in being bill nye um <laughs> but so my problem with that is like that's that's great and it asks those questions about like you you could take away from it what you will like a great storyteller makes you take away from the story what you will and it makes you ask questions about consciousness and the way and the reason this movie freaked me out is like we've talked about this on the podcast before the nature of consciousness is like my biggest phobia I don't even know if that is like what that is described as but consciousness in itself is a phobia of mine. Mm. Um, like, the Matrix freaks me out because, like, the entire idea of the world being designed around you is fake, is freaky to me. My problem, and my one problem, and after just admitting this movie's fucking terrific, is you focus in all of your drama at the end. You know, after the story with Fisher and, and you know, incepting yourself into Fisher's subconscious... And every level of that subconscious strips away everything else. Mm -hmm. But the main drama is the story of the cobs. This, Mm -hmm. like, Coltiard kind of creation of, uh, you know, um, Leonardo DiCaprio's cobs' own subconscious. Like, she's not even a real thing. She is him. But the kind of emotional elements that are played into that seem more of a conscious level. Like, everything else is just, like, extracted and base. Mm-hmm. Like, as you get further and further down, you get to these base emotions, these base, like, it's, it's a violent, unclean, kind of yeah. dirty, falling apart world. Mm-hmm. Yet, the world in which the Cobbs lived in for that 50 years is emotionally complex. Yeah. And that is my one strike against this movie, is... There's an emotional complexity to what is the main drama in the end of the movie. Like, Fisher's story doesn't really matter in terms of, like, the actual narrative. The, the narrative is about, you know, Leonardo DiCaprio dealing with his wife's death, dealing with 
you know, try well, to bring the back the nature of his, yeah, it's his the nature of his nature, wife's death, like yeah, that the nature he, of the nature of what is real, he, the consciousness. But he of also it. pushed the boundaries of the of the technology in order to manipulate his wife into doing something that he wanted her to do, and in yeah. doing so, he broke her and she killed herself. So he is kind of um, dealing with the guilt and the, everything of that. Dealing with the guilt, which is actually, I think, a key thing. Uh, which is another thing I don't think they hammer. They, he talks about the guilt. Like, he actually says the guilt, the guilt, the guilt. And that guilt has manifested itself in um, violently in the sense that Maul also finds him guilty and is trying, trying, to, to, kill info- him, and yeah. trying to actively destroy which any hope that he has. Himself, trying to kill himself. Yeah. Trying to kill himself, yeah. But my problem with this is that is this movie, and, and this is interesting in the sense that I'm noting a flaw based upon the backbone of such a well-constructed movie. Usually I'm able to scrub these things away yep. because they're not, they're just, under the Silver Lake I could easily forgive because it's, you know, a mishmash gelatin of a film um, <laughs> in a lot of ways. But this is so complex. And I, I, I'd like to hear your thoughts being on your list that this is an emotionally complex feeling mm-hmm. that is then reduced. It is at its base level, it's in the subconscious, but this is something that, it's such a complex, conscious thought mm-hmm. that I don't understand within the world of Inception how this exists only as base level. So I would argue that I think that's one of the reasons why I like this movie so much. Because it burrows... It, there's a, there's a complementary reduction in both the plots. So in one, you have Fisher... All the stuff, like so all the action, like the three le- levels of dream, all boils down to this pinwheel made out of newspaper, it looks like. You know what I mean? That he finds at his father's bedside. Um, it's just everything goes, it just oh. funnels down into this thing. Based around Rupert Nurburgdoc. Huh. Yeah, there you go. Um, that's a little, that's a clever, they were talking about Easter eggs, that's clever. Probably. But does it under... I, I don't want to go, we'll get <laughs> No, we don't have to get into that. I don't want to go down I the just, Easter egg rabbit hole yeah. because I'll, I'll never come back out. And then in... The Cobb Mall story, it burrows down to this r- real sense of guilt that he but, has for what he, for what he did to her. But I still say that, like, with Fisher's story, there's, like, that comes down to a base level. Like, like it, 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 it abstracts itself to a singular moment. Mm-hmm. And with the, the Mall and um, Dom story, it's so much more complex than that there's so much more layers to that like an onion yeah Correct, and so you're saying that we don't get enough of the onion we don't get enough we don't get to see enough of the layers no no no, just no, no. Kind of... it's 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 not that it's just it, that that thing is resolved at its basis level right like at the level of the subconscious is resolved but, but here's that's what... still so complex compared to the but world here's what i would say it. though is that she's dead what he is confronting there is a, pro- himself, yeah. is a projection of her. So he just has to confront... He's... Ellen Page is essentially asking him to confront once and for all something he confronts literally every day of his life that we've seen him confronting at every level of this, of this dream um, in all of the jobs that he's doing. You know what I mean? From the first kind of trial run he does with Saito to, you know the end of the movie where Maul comes in her snow camouflage and stabs um, Fisher's character. You know what I mean? Like, 
he's always confronting it. So he literally just has to sit down at a table and essentially tell himself the thing that he's been thinking for however long this has been going on for. Like, you don't get an exact time frame as to how long he's been away or when he, you know, killed Maul yeah. or whatever, or when Maul died. Um, he's known this. This has been, this is the thing that's been buried in his subconscious, and he's just had to literally get to go there. Not just with the elevator, which is an interesting, it's interesting to think about the elevator versus the beach. So the beach is almost the hard way, where the elevator is the easy way. You know what I mean? He has to go the distance. He has to tackle every aspect of this um, and confront it on that level rather than just kind of like taking an elevator down and then like going back up. You know what I mean? He has to like, he has to be there and he has to do the work and he has to confront this thing fully, which he's never had to do. Um, And so while that's not, that doesn't seem as complicated as everything else that's kind of come before it, it is emotion, it's emotionally impactful. In a way that I don't. It does seem complicated. It's just that's my problem. Is it is very complicated. Mm. You think it's too complicated for where it, the level it's at? I don't know. I, I'm perhaps reading more into the movie. I mean, I think I think it I works. Think it, it works on a narrative level, but like it, it doesn't work on a world building level, which is it's it's a it's a really base complaint of it. Well, I think that's a, it's interesting to think about it that way in the sense that at some point the world building stops and he just has to confront the emotions of it. Yeah. But he's literally spent every moment of the movie up until that point building the world up. And then he's asking, he just kind of stops doing it to say like, well, I just have to confront well, a I, real emotion. I need, I need to like wrap this up and yeah. figure out a way to like deal with an actual film arc. Right. <laughs> I, need, I need a climax. Um, and, um, but that's, that's, but I, I raise that complaint to talk about just how much of, work this is um this is a great i mean this is an all-time great movie the fact that our my complaint my most significant complaint about this movie besides like you know the uncanny valley of a city folding in on itself is that it doesn't pay credence to its own world building in service of the story which is absolutely an excusable thing to do um speaks volumes to just how much of an exceptional film this is. Um, and it was nominated for Best Picture and lost. That's, he stuttered. He was really stuttering King's hard. speech. Mario. Let's talk about, let's talk about, I, I want to wrap this up with, a, <laughs> as we often do, with a, you know, for as I guess, I guess, I guess we have to say this. I guess we do care about the Oscars in the sense that we shit on the Oscars so much. I care about the Oscars, and I feel like we had this conversation a little bit when we were talking about. Um, we care about the Oscars because we want us. I was talking about this. I've talked about this a lot with you and with like a lot of other people in reference to Get Out. In terms of the Oscars, have especially this in this year is another. Are you also getting years example. away from Get Out and realizing that it's also kind of a masterpiece? Or are you going? No, the other way? I don't love. I don't. I'm getting years away from Get Out and realizing how much more I like that movie. I like Get Out. I don't think it's a. I don't think it's a. I don't think it's a masterpiece. I. I but I but think it's I would much say. better than I thought it was in. Here's what I would say. I would say. I would say this: that if you, if the Oscars wanted to be, and I've said it before on this podcast, if the Oscars want to be culturally relevant, you have to award the culturally relevant movies. If you want to just literally be a movie about making, about uh, uh, you know. 
Oscar movies, if or whatever the definition um, of an Oscar movie is, if you want that to be your thing, then you give Green Book an Oscar, and then you give well, the King's Speech an Oscar. Well, I think I think the um, thing the thing is is like two twenty two to twenty seven year old men sitting here listening to this podcast who are going to do this podcast in ten years might talk about Get Out. They will not be talking about The Shape of Water, right? And that's and that's the that's. Always you know, I re-love Guillermo del Toro here. Just Guillermo del Toro made his masterpiece before The Shape of Water. He made several masterpieces yeah. before The Shape of Water. Um, um, I mean, the, I mean, Hellboy Two is a a way better movie than The Shape of Fucking Water. The movie we talked about two weeks ago is a significantly better movie than The Shape of Water. Sure, um, but that's but there is like King's Speech is a fine movie. Tom Hooper was a fine director. Colin Firth is actually... Colin Firth, I'd actually argue, was really, really good in that. That movie is sure. Colin... Like, I would have no problems with Colin... Like, Colin Firth gave the Oscar there. Not gonna really... I'm fine with that. You know? But, like, oh, man. The fact that... You know... Well, in the year of a movie's existence... And I, I think we're becoming more self-aware of this as social media gains prominence. Mm-hmm. Um... I don't know, 2010, social media was ramping up. But, you know, like, by 2017, people knew that the big movies of that year were Get Out and... Um, Are you talking about at Oscar time? Yeah, Get Out and... Uh, well, 27, not 2017, right? 27, yeah, 2017 was Get Out and... I'm trying to think of some other movie that's culturally relevant for 2017. Not really many others. None. But, like, last year, Black Panther. Like, as much More as, Black Klansman. Yeah, Black Panther, Black Klansman. Movies that are socially relevant, socially on the beat. Maybe not to Bredis and Ellis, but to other people. (laughs) Yeah. Um, It's interesting to see, like, has the world kind of changes itself and has the world shapes itself, you know, the Oscars kind of are starting to reflect that in a bit, in a way. Um, A movie like Inception would not have been nominated for Best Picture in 1992. No, but a movie like Inception probably would have won Best Picture in 2018. Don't you think? If Inception came out this year, don't you think everyone's just kind of... If if you really don't like... No, it still would have lost to Green Book. I I don't think so. I still think we're in the world of Green Book winning. Because Bohemian Rhapsody... I don't know. I mean, it's because then uh, Black Panther would have won. No, because Black Panther is not Inception. But we're not. It's not Inception. No, we're not. See, it's the thing. We seem more culturally aware of what these things mean. Now. Let's talk really quickly about how bad 2010 was, though, for the Oscars. Well, 2010's I mean, a bad. King's Speech won. 127 Hours was nominated, and that was fine. I mean, that should have been nominated for Best Director. I mean, the question about like, Nolan doesn't even get nominated for Best Director. Right. That year. I mean, I actually think the biggest problem with 2010's Oscars is that yeah, Colin Firth won, and that's only okay because. Ryan Gosling didn't get nominated for Blue Valentine. Which is ridiculous. Yeah, I was going to say, insane. I was going to say, Derek Key in France should have been in the conversation. Blue Valentine should have been nominated for Best Picture. It's problem, I think, I think Blue Valentine's problem ultimately is it's NC-17 rating. Just for being too good? No, it just, it doesn't, like... For being too certain, emotionally painful? The Academy's always balancing its, its pop culture relevance, and you're never going to be pop culture relevant when... Uh, NC-17 movie is one of your... It's like... It's the reason Michael Fassbender isn't nominated for Shame. Which or, it should have been. Right. You know? It's it's the reason Steve McQueen isn't... Doesn't have two Oscars. Which, I mean, I, he should have won for Shame, but he should have definitely been nominated for it. Mm-hmm. You know? 
there I accept that there is a certain necessity to be relevant within the you know discussion of the world that you can't give Blue Valentine or Shame or films like that of that creed you know an Oscar. I kind of why I, Blue yeah. Valentine's Raid NC Seventeen is Michelle Williams fucking beyond me. That movie Oscar should not be yeah, but that movie should not be rated NC Seventeen for one thing. There's what's what's going on in that movie that necessitates an NC Seventeen? I don't know. Nothing. NC Seventeen's a stupid fucking. I don't know why, why. I mean, that's the thing. I don't. Have, I I personally don't ever think about ratings, so I can't say that this movie didn't get nominated because of NC Seventeen ness. But I just know that like David O. Like the fighter is a Garbage. movie. You know what I mean? I mean, like Black Swan is Darren Aronofsky's second, maybe his worst movie. I like I like Black Swan, but I would agree it's his it's a worst movie over Noah. I think Noah. I really like aspects of Noah, and I think Noah really went for it. Like it Noah does go for Noah it. Noah yeah. is crazy. Black Swan's safe, but and, it's got some nice images. Like, probably one of the worst Coen Brother movies, which is. But it's got a you ton know. of nominations. Which is well, but still, like saying the worst Coen Brothers movies is like saying the worst flavor of mint chocolate ice cream. No, that's Spoilers. not like that because Spoilers, mint chocolate love, ice cream is uh, disgusting. Mario. Podcast over. <laughs> I'm out mint, on the mint, mint ice cho- cream. Mint chocolate no, ice cream? That's fucking disgusting. Fine, Terrible. What's, what's the flavor of ice cream you like? Chocolate chip cookie dough? I like salty pretzel. I'm not a big salty pretzel. You gotta go up the street do you like, to... Do you uh, like caramel? Uh, I like, like caramel, uh, yeah. It's like saying the worst flavor of caramel ice cream. They make this at Sweet Claws in Cheshire. They make this ice cream called uh, cashew caramel. And it's it's my new ice cream. Well, that's... that's Oh, cashew caramel. I haven't had that one. <sighs> Whew. I thought you were talking about pretzel. Salty pretzel is also very good. It has caramel in it. I don't know. That's not a salty ice cream guy. That's so not my thing. But it's it's a weird year. Um, well, it's a weird year in the sense that they had an opportunity to really give a lot of... Like, Inception was really I like complicated. About, it was well-regarded intellectually and also made a shit ton of fucking money. Yeah. So what is it that so the King's Speech is doing that Inception wasn't doing that what made movies are we talking about? What movies are we talking about from 2010 now? Well, two, I mean, to, uh, Toy, Toy Story, Story 3. 3. Yeah, as I say, Toy Story 3 Which is 3 about to Inception. get ruined as Toy Story 4 comes out. Yeah, that like, movie. And maybe, I don't know, Tangled? And like then you have like the introductory well, the so, well, the you have the introductory films of like Dog... Well, social Network. Nobody talks about Social Network anymore. <clears throat> I mean, I think we talk more about Dogtooth and Incendies. You mm-hmm. know, the first major reflections of um, American cinema from foreign directors... Uh, Dennis Villeneuve and, and Yorgos Lafamos more than we talk about the social network well the social network is a stupid movie like I think we as a society really wanted to have social network really mean something but as it turns out it doesn't really mean anything yeah especially as we realize that you know well, as it, um, I, I can't remember the guy's name the Facebook guy Mark Zuckerberg yeah as, as, we, as we realize Mark Zuckerberg is just a joke it's not even that Mark Zuckerberg is a joke even though Mark Zuckerberg is a joke it's that fucking take that Mark Zuckerberg the social network we don't have a Facebook <laughs> pivotal the so, film the social network assumes that we value social media in a certain way and in reality social media has become or, or social networking has become a, um, a much more <sighs> divisive yeah, entity than it was back then. You know what I mean? Like the social network means something different now. The social network is a problem rather than a really good idea. Yeah. So the social network is actually and is it, generally culturally regarded as a bad idea. And beyond that, it's just David Fincher being kind of lazy. That's a lazy fucking movie. I did, I thought it sucked when I saw it. Oh, so I hate it. I, I, I mean, hate it. I can't. Really. I mean, 
I'm trying to even think of my my favorite movie for that year was probably Blue Valentine and Winter's Bone. And Winter's and Winter's Bone's like another good movie. Yeah, you know. But no, we're just. I think the discussion that should end here is is it's interesting now. To say that, I mean, has the evolution of the social network in itself, and you know, our our consciousness of social media, but more just has we have a discussion in the moment. I mean, I think Inception kind of falls to the wayside slightly. I don't think we talk about Inception as it's much. Just, it's too hard. It's too difficult. So yeah, the thing I find most interesting um, is just like we're 10 years now removed from Inception, about. Mm. Yep, almost. A decade. And it, like you said, like this movie is definitely a bigger contender now. And it's that's the one thing about film and art, I guess, in the modern world. And I don't know, maybe maybe people have had this opinion throughout the centuries. But it's interesting to watch this like fast evolution of it. Um, well, yeah, we want it to be a fast evolution, and it's not evolving as fast as we'd like to. <laughs> yeah. Or maybe it is evolving really fast, and it's just evolving in a terrible way. <laughs> but, you know, films like Inception or uh, whatnot, we, we feel like would be more prevalent. I mean, do we think in 2019 the kids are all right gets nominated for Best Picture? Maybe. I mean, the kids are all right. Isn't the kids? Are, the kids are all right is a problematic movie. Probably not socially in the sense that I doubt that. It's not. Yeah, it's not I problematic. Doubt they, I doubt that a certain aspect of the culture would accept the idea that um, Julianne Moore's character kind of skips around between being. But maybe. Or that Mark Ruffio is allowed to be a person in any movie outside of Boston. <sighs> But maybe they. I mean, but maybe they would. Maybe that stuff now is so fluid that the kids are all right. Speaks even more to a group of people oh, I who forgot, feel I forgot kind of he voiceless. Got, I actually forgot he got nominated for that movie. Why? He's good. He's good. But yeah. Also, Jeremy Renner got nominated for the talent. Well, that's, but he's he was on a roll then. <laughs> yeah, the Hurt Locker was only two years before. It. No, a year before. Year before. Hurt Locker is twenty two thousand nine. Yeah. Um, um. So he's. I mean, it's just. It's kind of. I mean, two thousand. I just think it's. I think the proficiency of this movie. I think 2010 and 2011. I mean, the perfect. Sorry, go ahead. Here's the what I think. Of the movie. I think we talked about last week about the Revenant versus Spotlight. I think this is another one of those things where, like, in 2000, if Inception came out in 2019, basically, I mean, the special effects would be different, would be a little better. So let's say it's the same movie with a little better special effects. I think you'd be having a kind of whatever movie you want to versus Inception kind of argument here where one of them is a kind of classicist spotlight green book whatever kind of movie and one of them is a boundary pushing um expression of pure cinema you know what i mean yeah and i think where i think the thing that's interesting is i i don't i don't know i think like the the academy and the academy is a good reflection of of art like almost in general is um you know you compare like 2010 to something like 2016, where the most awarded film in 2016 is Mad Max: Fury Road, um, which is which is awesome. Yeah, and like you have you have films that probably aren't really nominated. In a, like The Martian probably doesn't get. I mean, I think so, awarded. I mean, you know, and like prepare like like the the, the philosophy of 2016, they're like leading in 2017 and 2018, compared to like back then. I think we have. Such different, well, here's, I mean, so it's such a different world, isn't it? I think, yeah, especially because Deborah Granick would 100% be nominated for Winter's Bone. 
over yeah Joel Ethan Cohen probably I mean, people over still, David O. Russell I mean, over maybe Winter, maybe Winter's over, Bone is a lesser film. I mean, Winter's Bone is a more um I, I forgot her movie with Ben Foster. Leave No Trace. Leave No Trace is a lesser film than Winter's Bone. I mean, like Winter's Bone makes Jennifer Lawrence right. I mean, David O. Russell. For as shit of a director as he is, and yeah, I will lean into that statement. I will join you with leaning into David O'Russell. If David Russell, David O'Russell, if he asked to be on this podcast, we'd actually refuse. I would let him on the podcast, but I, no, I'd I have, refuse. I'd have, like, I will leave this podcast. It wouldn't be one I will of those not be in that episode. Where I would sycophantically just kind of be like, "Well, this movie was really good." I'd be like, "You made Three Kings, and then you made a bunch of garbage for twenty years." Three Kings is also Answer. just Three Kings is also just all right. Three Kings. Also, is, David O'Russell fucking sucks. Like he was such a shit on I Heart Huckabees. And, like, everyone says there's no reason for him to be a shit. Well, I mean, the, besides I the fact that Dustin, Huff, like, Dustin Hoffman sucks. But beyond that fact, but, like... I mean, Three Kings, is, Three Kings is, is a really, really, really interesting movie. It's Three interesting, Kings but it's a, okay. No, but I think it's, I think it's a little better than okay. Because I think it plays with a lot of um, tropes that we had come to expect from movies of that era, war movies specifically. It leaned into... A, it was a war movie that knew what it was about. You know what I mean? It, like from even from like a script perspective, it was way different in the sense that the Americans weren't just like the hero, like the general heroes that they're no, yeah, generally portrayed as. You know what I mean? It was kind of like we understand. You got, got Spike Jones. You got, got Spike uh, Jones. Actor uh, Spike Jones. Yeah. Um, and Nora Dunn. Where'd she go? It understands what it's supposed to be, and it is it is that thing. Um, Throwing into the face of all the other war movies that have ever been made about like what the nature of war really is. Yeah, but flirting with disaster, I heard Huckabee's The Fighter, Silver Lang's Playbook, American Hustle, and Joy. All those movies fucking stink. Thumbs down. David uh, Russell, we kind of hate you. We're just not David O. Russell people. No, I don't. I don't. Yeah, well, nobody. I mean, nobody. People, I would. Somebody, I, people are. I would actively argue that people should not be David O. Russell. I people. agree with you, but some people are. But I think the bigger question is that. There would be more if you transport 2010s films to, and this is true of a lot of awards. I mean, Blue Valentine gets nominated. Blue in, Valentine in the, gets nominated because of Man- Manchester. Inception, if, if Manchester by the Sea gets nominated, then Blue Valentine gets nominated. Yeah, you know what I mean. Um, Toy Story three gets a little more notice. Toy Story three maybe sneaks a director nomination. Toy Story three maybe gets in the conversation of one of these four movies can win Best Picture. Yeah, kind of like this year where like. We don't know what's going to win. We think it's going to be this. It ended up not Black, being that. Black Swan probably wins that year. No, Black Swan does not. No, even but register. We're, we're in 2018, man. Mm-mm. In 2018, we're green. We're a David Fairley movie. And I then, disagree. Uh, I disagree. I think Natalie Portman maybe still wins the Oscar. Oh, easily. I think. But Black Swan. I think it's just it's up to her and Black Swan Jennifer is maybe Lawrence. the ninth movie. You know what I mean? It's just like, well, that movie worked. He definitely, Darren Aronofsky definitely doesn't get nominated for best director. It's an. I think. I think a, beautiful. I think beautiful gets more in the conversation. You think I so? think beautiful gets a picture nomination. It's just. I mean, this is a really interesting year in the sense that it had a bunch. Especially of, with like, like Newt probably gets in that conversation for beautiful. Even though beautiful is kind of like a lesser movie of his, like, but since then, everything re-nominate with Newt because he has such like a visual style. I just think there's a lot more. Inter- a lot Babel. of these. A lot of these movies that are nominated. It's, it's, this is a good year to have this conversation, I think, because a lot of these movies that are nominated, I actually think, are pretty. This is a pivotal year. These are pretty good. Like, Wink to these, the mic. These are actually pretty good movies, um, except for the ones that we've decided aren't pretty good, like The Fighter. Like The Fighter, but like you know, Black Swan. The kids are all right. Beautiful. Even like even King's Speech. Which ends up, even King's Speech was a good movie. It's it just inter- not a great. movie. It was an interesting movie, and in how the camera was always sideways. Um, 
but it has two like if you trans- three really good performances. If you transpose too. the nature of the culture onto the nature of the current culture onto this slate of movies, you get a totally different you get a totally different thing. No one would give a fuck about the King's Speech in two thousand nineteen. No. You know what I mean? They just wouldn't because nobody it's, cares. It's a ninth picture. It's 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 the last like, I mean this nominated. is where if we were Brady Snells we'd have a conversation about like how the Obama administration juxtaposed on top of like the culture at that time allowed us to think that something like the King's Speech was good because we didn't have to think about what mattered. We could just think about what was technically proficient and not what was culturally relevant. Oh, where in two, oh back, back when the world made sense? Right. Where in post-Trump, we every award, every Super Bowl, every women's college basketball NCAA tournament champion, like Final Four game that UConn doesn't win is a reflection on the fact that the world doesn't make any sense anymore. What the hell are we going to do about it? You know what I mean? Um, where, it almost, so seems, like, it almost at, seems like the leader of the free world, quote-unquote, uh, Makes makes a lot of sense in the cultural relevancy of the discussions happening, huh? Uh, yeah. yeah. I think it does. It's I weird. Mean, it's almost like Trump actually, the election of Trump actually does matter. Brett Easton Ellis. Fuck you. I think that's, a, I mean, to bring it full circle, the yeah. problem with White is that he simultaneously says that the election of Donald Trump matters and doesn't matter at the same time. Well, the problem with White in full, like, ending this conversation as we get to the closure is the fact that somebody like the New Yorker New Yorker article said maybe you shouldn't have written a movie maybe you shouldn't have written a book about politics if you you know didn't care about politics and he I think he agrees with you he does because <laughs> all he just says is like I got punked all Brendan Easton Ellis does is show his age by referencing Some something punk, from yeah. 2000 by referencing a Dex Shepard vehicle that was that was that was at, was that Dax Shepard? Dax Shepard was one of like the like the guys that oh. did like the punk. Game, I just yeah. thought that was Ashton Kutcher. Well, he did. I, even but... Ashton, like, yeah, yeah, no, I know you're right, but Ashton Kutcher would even be like, "That's dated." <laughs> That's a really dated reference. You would stop taking pictures of stuff and be like, "Also, has we close this episode?" One of my favorite. That's one of my favorite celebrity relationships is Ashton Kutcher Milakunas, just because like. I grew up on like uh, that '70s show, and to have them actually get together in real life was satisfying. It was really sad. Yeah, yeah. it was like it's kind of like one of those like you have those Lego pieces, and you're like, oh, these don't fit, and you kind of fit them together. And you're like, mm, looks good. Like, uh, yeah. there you go. Good. good work. You want to talk about Lego pieces? You can uh, tweet us <laughs> at pivotal at twitter dot com slash film pivotal. If you try to tweet us at pivotal film, you probably tweet. I don't know what'll happen. It's probably a pornographic website so do you um, think do we actually think 70 percent of the internet is porn yeah why not porn and shopping chopping shopping well porn shopping naked have we, naked wood cutting have we actually talked about the chopping mall remake no i think after this podcast is done me and you write rewrite a chopping mall remake and that's how we get into hollywood i think we're already in no but like i think we need to rewrite chopping mall I've been wearing. Have been you wearing seen? Have you, have you ever seen Chopping Mall? No. So Chopping Mall is a is a nineteen seventies nineteen eighties gem, starring um, Dick Miller. You know Dick Miller. Yeah. You better know Dick Miller. Um, about uh, a mall after it's closed down, they have three security robots. Let's call them Marty's to bring it full circle to the stop and shot conversation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Stop and shawl. Stop and shop conversation. Uh, who patrol, but then they get struck by lightning. Uh, I believe one of the scientists actually working at the mall is David Cronenberg. Ooh. Um, 
and the robots go crazy. They just go around just killing people. And I kind of think this movie needs to be remade. Like, we're remaking fucking Child's Play, like, which looks great. Like, I'm a movie geek, but the Child's Play remake is going to be fucking fun. You got Aubrey Plaza and Brian Tyree Henry. We've spent Henry. a lot of time talking about this on this podcast. Oh, yeah. We're Our gonna... excitement over the Child's Play. Well, no. My <laughs> excitement and your, like, confusion. I just don't care. I just don't the, care. A new trailer came out yesterday. I it know. Sounds, uh, two days ago. Sorry. We're talking in Saturday terms. Uh, it's going to be great. Mark Hamill's voicing whatever Chucky's called now, buddy. I mean, I, I, he's not Chucky now. I love that because Mark Hamill is also, like, featured, his voice is featured heavily in that new Star Wars trailer. Did you see the new trailer for Child's Play? I did not get a chance to watch After it. After we finish this podcast, you're going to watch it. Uh, okay. Uh, <laughs> but anyways, um, I don't even know what I'm talking about anymore. Anyway, if you want to tweet us, tweet us at Film Pivotal. Uh, if you tweet us at Pivotal Film, it's probably a porn site. So I'm not cutting any of that out, so you just said that twice. Yeah, I know. Uh, <laughs> or you can uh, message us at pivotalfilmpodcast at gmail.com. You can go to pivotalfilm.com and see. We lost it. all 40 listeners that joined us for our <laughs> Hellboy had, episode. They had high hopes after the Hellboy episode. And they're just like, <laughs> They're just like, I'm not doing this. Under the Silver Lake and a gu- guava lake. It's all relevant. Look for the we got Easter eggs planted all over this this bad what, boy. <laughs> um, go to pivotalfilm.com. We have links uh, to how you can subscribe to us. Do links to our Twitter. You can see lists of the movies on our lists. If you go um, H five to G four, uh, you'll find us there too. Yeah. Um, until then, you know, I don't. Until then, what the fuck does that mean? Uh, until the next episode. <laughs> Actually, next week, guys, you're you're in for a treat. Next week, you're going to get a Friday episode. As we talk about Avengers Endgame. And two movies that you definitely don't want to see. Are on our list? Try to imagine what those are. No, those movies are... One of my... My movie's great. No one wants to see that movie. The movie's great. Who <laughs> doesn't love some French movies in their life? <laughs> yeah, that's what that movie is. It's just a French movie. Okay. You know, in the post-apocalyptic world, you gotta get some French. Figure out what those movies are, go see them, drink a beer, and we'll see you next week.